Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September the 30th, 843-661-0937. The day the hurricane is to arrive. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Rev informed me, good morning, Freehold. Rev informed me late yesterday afternoon or early into the evening that he was not going to williams Bryce Stadium to see the football game. Mm-hmm. Is that out of frustration, anger, no, um, the no. weather, the wife? I mean, there are a lot of reasons <laughs> that we do or don't do certain things in our daily routines. We were prepared to go, ready to leave uh, right after 5 o'clock. So uh, my wife and I and my son were at home and we were standing there, and she hadn't been feeling good. One of your boys could go. You knew that. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, He had. Uh, he's lives in Charleston. And had a had, commitment. Had a commitment. Called so a job. He couldn't go. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, But we, we were there, and we were kind of like, you know, all of us are ready to go if we want to. Uh, and I said, but if you don't want to, I'm cool with that too. I hate, you know, having tickets and not using them, of course, after, after that sizable investment. Um, but, but she hadn't been feeling good for a couple of days and thinking about being out there in the breeze said, well, why don't we just stay home and so do you feel you were seeing, I'm trying to get you on, 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 okay. on, on the, the, the complaining and griping scene. Okay. Do you feel you were wronged by playing the game yesterday? I mean, you, you get the, the complications I mean, nobody gets it exactly right every right. time. Right. But do you feel like, how do you feel about <laughs> spending that money and not going to the game? Cause that was going to, I mean, when you told me you weren't going, I mean, I didn't go, but somebody used my tickets. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, Jay Jordan. I mean, Jay Jordan carried his family, used my tickets. Um, had a big time, I think. I talked to him before the game, didn't talk to him after the game. But your tickets went to waste. Exactly. Right? Mine yep. didn't go to waste. I yep. mean, I knew early in the week, once they scheduled a game for Thursday, yep. I got to get up too early. And just so you know how good a person I am, I mean, Rev can support me on this. Mm-hmm. Just so you know how kind-hearted Here we go. and altruistic I am. Here we go. I told Rev yesterday. And he can recount the conversation. I said, Rev, look, man, if you go to the game and it's late getting home, don't worry about the first couple of hours. I mean, I can you handle did. that without you here. You did. Um, I mean, it would be like you to come to work when you're supposed to, but I wanted mm-hmm. you to know that, hey, if you go up there and get caught in the, well, there ain't going to be any traffic because ain't nobody going to the game on a Thursday <laughs> night with a threatened hurricane. Um, but but if you get up there and call, get caught in the, in the, in the gaggle of 10,000 people yeah. or 25,000 people, and you try to get home, and it doesn't work out. And to get home late, just take a couple of hours and you did? catch up on your sleep. And I can man the fort until you um you until you get back. You absolutely did. Offer See, it's not was... all about me. It's never been about me. It's all about me and Rev. What's really Rev and me? Rev and I, <laughs> grammatically, yeah. correct. Free yeah, oh, you you'll earn that. I mean, you you didn't quite. And, I mean, uh, another month or two, <laughs> and you're fully vested. And, and you'll be yeah it'll hey, be a I, trifecta. I got I got to give Mike credit because we did have a high school. Who game was Mike? That, Mike. Oh, Freehold. Okay. Sorry, hey, you know him as Freehold. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will give him a lot of credit too for stepping up because last night with the rescheduling of the high school games, we broadcast the Hartsville High South Lawrence game on uh, one of our radio stations, one of the one of our sister stations, and and he offered to stay here and produce it again. Weird night. Um, so appreciate that because he had a late night work. But the majority. Here's what I found about yeah. the majority of Yankees. Give yourself a round of applause. The majority of Yankees are hard workers. They're just jerks. No. <laughs> I mean, they're hard work. I just said the majority. I just say all freehold. I said the majority of Yankees are hard workers. They're not lazy folk, but they're just jerks. And you kind of have a, um, it's a balancing act. Are they more of a jerk than they are a hard worker? <laughs> are they more of a hard worker than they are a jerk? And if they're more of a hard worker than they are a jerk, you just kind of accept it as, you know, one of those northern aggressors. You know how they are. And Rev, they do the same thing to us. Don't 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 ever oh, for a second I'm, I'm suspect sure. when, when those folks gather up in some of those northern aggressive towns, they they talk about us in a very um, condescending way, if you will. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The Gamecocks score fifty. That's two consecutive weeks of scoring fifty. I still ain't impressed. I'm still furious they played on Thursday. <laughs> I can't get past it. I mean, I'm so angry. To kind of answer your question, I did feel like that 
yesterday. Looking at the forecast for Saturday, it looks like it's going to be okay. We There's a couple other big football games being played by big teams in the state. Well, the two best teams in the state are playing Saturday. <laughs> exactly. Um, Clemson and Coastal. So, you know, I did kind of think that last night. I was like, man, why did they move well, I mean, this? Just ask yourself a simple question. made it question. so difficult. I want to say this. So I got a text yesterday from an insider at USC, um, kind of a uh, copied and paste text saying, um, hey, man, it really bothers me how negative already is on the Gamecocks right now. I mean, he didn't send that text to me. He sent it to a mutual friend of ours. I'm, I'm not being negative. I'm calling it like I see it. I'm not going to be a sunshine pumper. There is no bigger Gamecock fan in this world than I am. I mean, I've got 50 years of scars on my back to prove it. I mean, I drove to Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, and back. I didn't even get a hotel room. I mean, a buddy of mine got off at Newcore midnight. We drove. He drove three and a half hours. I drove three and a half hours. He drove three and a half hours. I drove. We drove to Lincoln, Nebraska and back and didn't get a hotel. I mean, that's stupid. How stupid is that? But that gives me a right to be critical when I think they deserve um, criticism. I, I went to Alabama uh, the first or second year they were the, the SEC. It's 21 to nothing, and the Crimson Tide hadn't had a second down yet. I mean, I'm sitting there with two fellow buddies. And we look at each other, and I'm going like, hey, man, it's 21 to nothing, and they had not had a second down yet. And my buddy goes, mm, you're right. They have it. So I've earned some of that right to be mm-hmm. critical. And it's not critical because I don't love the Gamecocks. I just want them to make the fully, the, the fully-fledged commitment to football that these other schools have. So here's the only question I'll ask this morning. If there are three football teams in this state that are considered better than everybody else. I mean, Walford had its year or had its run. Uh, Mike Ayers was there. Walford was a good football program. Not so much now. Furman has had its day. The Citadel has had their day. I mean, the, 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 the Southern Conference trifecta, so to speak. Coastal's the team on the move. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. Coastal is a top 25 caliber team. I mean, they're not, they're not Alabama, Georgia, or Clemson. But they're a top 25 caliber football team. I didn't say they're a top 25 team year after year, but right now in this run, um, they're a good team. So if Coastal to the east of us can figure out a way to maintain their schedule status for Saturday, Clemson to the west of the Gamecocks can figure out a way to maintain their status and play on Saturday, then why are the Gamecocks not playing? That's the only question I ask. You got one team on the coast. Where a hurricane is about to hit. And as of right now, I mean, they may change it today that something may happen. I mean, it looks to me like this is going to be somewhat of a direct hit. But, but if it bobs a little further west, you know, and turns a little quicker to the west, it could be extremely problematic along the Grand Strand. But it looks like right now that we'll get the clean side of the storm, right, Rev? Instead of the dirty side like. of the storm. But nobody knows. Here's the point I'm trying to make. You've got three college football teams who had home games. You got one of the western part of the state, one of the central part of the state, one of the eastern part of the state. On Monday, one of those teams canceled their game. The other two have maintained their, their scheduling status as is. Now they no, they did move the time of the from four to game. seven. Yeah. Okay. It's seven. Well, so why could the Gamecocks have moved their game from twelve noon on Saturday till seven o'clock in the evening? I mean, you like a night game better. Yep. I like a night yep. game better. Gives that would have been ideal to, to tailgate and do those other sorts of things. And that's not being critical. That's being honest. I mean, what's critical about that? Someone in Gamecock Nation help me understand how I'm being critical. Your rival to the West had a game scheduled for Saturday. They're honoring that commitment. Your, your, your potential rival to the East had a game scheduled for Saturday. They're honoring that commitment. We, the Gamecocks, had a commitment made to our fan base on Saturday. And for some reason, 
we decided not to honor that commitment. Now, but that, that's the, how is that being critical? That's not being critical. That's being candid and honest and not a sunshine pumper. And I guess if you're an insider, you would rather somebody not be honest, not be candid, and not be a sunshine pumper. Glenn Beck did something kind of interesting yesterday. I'll leave here. Here's my routine. You ready? Nobody cares, but I'm going to do it anyway. So on Monday, I'm a Carolina Bank customer. So on Monday, because they're a local bank, they've been very gracious and kind to me, and I love the Beasley family, and uh, so some of the folks there have been just unbelievably personal and gracious to me uh, in my business and personal and family life. So when I leave here on Monday, I normally stop by this Carolina Bank ATM in the parking lot of the convenience store. And I do it so I don't have to pay the 250 or 350 you know, um, surcharge uh, yeah, to get some money, fee. a transaction yeah. fee. Yeah. There you go. So I get 100 bucks. Uh, that's normally what I do. I get 100 bucks and I try to pay for my meals during the week in cash. Well, well, 100 isn't enough anymore. You know what I mean? If you go eat lunch and you, and you eat inside somewhere and you want to give the lady somewhat of a tip, I mean, it's hard to eat for 10 or 12 bucks anymore. I mean, you're nodding your head. No, I mean, it, yeah. it's, especially if you include somewhat of a decent tip to mm-hmm. the person who's doing their job. So, um, so, so I've gone from getting 100 to getting 150, 160. I'm sorry, 160. I've getting $20 denominations. And um, I mean, that makes me angry to begin with. Um, anyway, I, I pull up to the ATM machine yesterday. <laughs> you, you're mad because you have to get 20s? Well, I mean, yeah, no, I have to get 160 instead of 100. Okay, I thought you were saying I have to get, because they only do $20 no, no, that, that, that denominations. The denomination doesn't bother okay. me. It's just the fact that I'm having to get $60 more. Just make it sure. And, I, okay. and I don't, I'm not a big shot. I mean, I don't eat that way. You know what I mean? I, I get a, a lunch from here and a lunch from there. And I mean, I've got to where now I eat in the car to keep from paying somebody a tip. <laughs> And that's not being a tightwad. I mean, that's just being conscientious of what things cost. I mean, you, well, a lot <laughs> of other people are going, I do it too. I mean, I know what he's talking about. I do it too. Yeah. Save that four bucks or five bucks <laughs> on a tip because things have gotten so damn expensive. I mean, they're just ridiculously expensive right. right now. So Glenn Beck comes on the air while I'm at the window or at the um, the ATM screen, and he says, um, I'm not going to name the person. But he says, yes, I am. I'm going to call the name. So he says he appears on Neil Cavuto's show. And, um, and I've got it on 95.3, and I'm listening to Beck, and I'm going, okay, he just called a guy by the name. This might be interesting. I mean, th- this could get personal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Provocative radio. I understand that to some degree. So Beck says to begin with, I'm not going to call this person by name. But then he says, yes, I am. I absolutely am, because I think he's one of the really good guys in media. I think he's one of the honest brokers in media. I think he's one of the best souls in all of media. And he says, I'm on, Glenn, I'm on um, Neil Cavuto's show on Fox Business one afternoon. And I walked through why I think the economy is about to unravel. He said, this is about six months ago. And we're talking about COVID and we're talking about um, CARES and American Rescue Plan and all these other. We're talking about the Fed and easy money and quantitative easing and zero percent. The same thing we've been talking about for the past year or so. But he says he he kind of lays out in about six minutes why he believes we have a, a deep recession headed our way. Some of the same things I've tried to argue. Um and he says, when, when he says, and Neil Cavuto says, Glenn Beck, thanks for joining us. As they go to commercial, Beck says that, no, Cavuto says to Beck, that's one of the most irresponsible things I've ever heard a journalist say. You are the most irresponsible journalist or professing journalist that has ever been on the airwaves. And Beck says, I've always liked Cavuto. I thought he like, kind of liked me. He said, Neil, what, what did I do? He said, um, you, just, you just scared the daylights out of people, man. And he said, did I misspeak? I mean, is, is there something about what I said you disagree with? He said, but no, but we can't freak people out. In other words, we can't be honest with people. I mean, if we think the federal government, the Federal Reserve, and all these other things have screwed up the economy, I mean, we can't tell them that. We can't tell them what may be coming their way. In other words, it's our job to masquerade. 
It's our job to be wow. brokers on behalf of whomever we're trying to. I mean, these masters of the universe. We can't be critical to those people because if we're critical, what, what Cavuto is saying basically is, Beck, you start being critical of those people, you lose sponsorship dollars. I mean, if you start throwing corporate America under the bus or you start. If you start telling the truth. Yeah, if you start to telling the, the truth people. about the American political system and our monetary policy oh, wow. and those in charge. I mean, do you not understand? Beck, you've been doing this a long time. You know better than to be honest with people. You can do it on that crazy radio show of yours because that's a bunch of nuts who listen to you every day. But you can't come on this mainstream television network and say reckless and careless things like that. We'd rather you tell a lie. So Cavuto, who I've always felt is one of the good guys in, in media, Cavuto's basically saying you have an obligation to be un, uh, dishonest. When the, when the honesty could create conflict or concern or, or anxiety or, or even some sort of emotional panic, you can't do that. You, you've got to be dishonest to people. That's what we do. And it was just so revealing to me and, um, and so honest and so true. I mean, that's kind of sort of where we are in the American political media today. you got to be careful about telling people the truth. That's why I'm so proud to be a part of conservative talk radio. I think it's one of the last bastions of, of, of critical thinking and, and disagreeable um, conversations and debate. And we're and, not afraid of the truth. No, not, not at all. I mean, Jeff called in yesterday. I think Jeff is, is reaching for the stars, trying to compare Donald Trump's cognitive state with Joe Biden's, but he's allowed to say that, isn't he? I mean, sure. what, what are we if we don't allow Jeff to, to make that case? I mean, we're no different than the rest. Yeah. I mean, there's this preconceived notion we have and, and this um, con con consistency of belief that we've fallen into, and it's just totally unfair to the conversation that is necessary into finding a better way to, to govern, a better way to, I don't know, to seek good economic policy and solve the country's problems and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I just thought that was very interesting uh, as I was getting about 160 bucks out <laughs> that used to be, uh, you know, before COVID, 100 bucks. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just it's gotten real expensive to live today. I don't know if you saw this or not, but they revised the first quarter GDP, negative 1.6, second quarter, negative 0.6. Um, this will be probably a negative GDP quarter, but I'm, 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 I don't have any idea how many consecutive quarters it takes now to declare yourself in a recession. I mean, it may be the new number, maybe three I or still four believe it's two. or five or six. Well, I mean, that's what you believe, yeah. but there's an argument made by the masters of the universe that that's not necessarily uh, the, the case anymore. 843-661-0937. I do want to try to delve into some data. I mean, there's some data points. Some are encouraging. Some are discouraging. There's a lot more encouraging than discouraging when it comes to um, where I think we are in the midterms, where it appears we're headed in relation to the midterms, I've tried to read a good bit this week. I am—I mean, you folks have listened to me long enough. When I start down a rabbit hole, I mean, I, I go to the bottom. I mean, I go to the to the end. I mean, I, that's just the nature of. Um, Can confirm. Yeah, I mean, that's just the way I am. I mean, once I get something on my head, I mean, remember the cathedral. I mean, whether you want it or not, we took a month-long class on the cathedral and the dark enlighteners and you know all these other the the tealist. You know, and then the, how how effective are they going to be in American politics or not? Um, this, this Fed case yesterday, and this is kind of encouraging to me, and, and I do want to touch on it again. Somebody came up to me yesterday and said, hey, um, I think I understand some of what you talked about with the Fed. And I said, good, I did too. Some of what I talked about <laughs> with the Fed. But they were talking about mortgage-backed securities, and they said, I've never really understood why the Fed printing money 
distorts the economy of the way you argue it does. And he says, but you made a perfect point. If J.P. Morgan doesn't have to have a trillion dollars to buy mortgage-backed securities, but the Fed can, J.P. Morgan can take that trillion dollars and do whatever else. You know, in the finance world, they choose to do. They can invest in whatever they choose or loan to whomever they choose to loan to. And he said, okay, that put it in a way that I understand it. And he said, I'm not sure I still know what mortgage-backed securities are. I said, they're just bonds. I mean, it's debt secured by mortgages and, and by real estate, uh, real property. I mean, he said, okay, I get that. So, so when, when, when the Fed buys $2 trillion in mortgage-backed securities, that's $2 trillion that aren't on the books at Goldman Sachs aren't on the books at J.P. Morgan, aren't on the books at Citibank, they can take that excess capital and invest in whatever else is out there. That's another trillion, another two trillion sloshing around in the American economy, creating, uh, I don't know, Rev, a, um, a return on investment in some places. And that's why it distorts in such a major way the American economy. I wrote down this morning, uh, the purchaser of last resort. You want to play out the worst case scenario? What happens when the government spends money it doesn't have? The Fed decides not to buy the debt. And Rev says, I've got money, but I'm not paying you 1% for that debt. I mean, I'll pay you, you know, I'll, I'll, you pay me 4%, I'll buy the debt. That, that's where, that's the vicious cycle. I mean, that's called the doom cycle. I mean, there's an economic term. I mean, there, there's actually a, a terminology for what, when you start putting debt on, in the marketplace, and there are no takers, and the Fed basically says, no, I mean, we're not in an easy money stance any longer. We can't do that any longer. I mean, we've, we've looked at the data. We've studied our, our arrangement. We, we've looked at the long-term prospectus or, or the spending curve, and we just can't do that in good faith. What Does that force the government into some sort of austerity policy? I don't know. I mean, I'll have, we have not run into that yet. But, but what happens today if the government prints or the government appropriates $300 billion that it doesn't have – they can't find a buyer on the street, so to speak. And the Fed says, thank you, but no thank you. What happens when there are no buyers of our debt? I mean, right now there's a lot of buyers because the dollar. Remember the euro change or the euro exchanges and the, um, the situation a lot of European countries find them, themselves in. Um, we're, the, uh, we're the best of the bad, best of the worst, so to speak. But, um, but what happens? I mean, what, what, if, that, if that reality ever inverts... And we go to a place where there's no demand for American federal debt. I mean, that, that is a scary proposition, but one we may face sooner than later. Mm. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is a number on a hurricane day. I want to give our Republican comrades some good news, and I'll do that as the show progresses. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, I got to apologize to Mike. When I called, he put me on, you know, like he normally does on the show. And it went from Ken R talking to talking about the hurricane. I said, wait a minute, he's been putting me on a weather channel. <laughs> I think that was in the break there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was pretty quick break. But anyway, you know, we did find out what happens when they can't sell the treasuries back. We talked earlier about this in 20 when they put out like 55 or $65 billion worth of treasuries and nobody bought them, that was the start of the, the, the Fed's balance sheet going straight back up. But I, I try to explain it to people in the easiest terms I know of. It's like 
you know, you sell cars for $1,000 a piece. And, you you know, people come in, you get a 250 down payment, you check out whether they can pay, they got a good job, whatever, and you sell about maybe 10 cars a month. And then I come in and say, tell you what, uh, Ken, every car you sell, I'm going to buy that contract from you. I'll give you $1,000 because that's what you sell your cars for. Now, all of a sudden, every car you sell, you get $1,000 for no matter what. So you don't even care if you get a down payment, whether they work or make the payment or anything else. You're going to sell 100 cars a month. And that's basically what happened whenever the Fed prints money like this and buys up mortgage-backed securities. That lets the people, not that I'm saying that you would do this, but that lets people with unscrupulous values go out and it causes a run on the market, runs prices up because of the demand, and then when it crashes, the prices reset back to where they were to start with. So you have the big run-up in inflation, and then when everything can't be continued, it doesn't continue, so it goes back to where it started, you know. And that was the point I I called to make. Y'all have a good, safe day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You do the same. And the point I was trying to make is, yeah, I mean, the Fed's, what if the Fed isn't there? I mean, what if the Fed declares themselves not a buyer? I mean, Joe's right. If there is no no marketplace for government debt, you defer to the Fed. And the Fed's been kind of the, um, the purchaser of last resort. What if the Fed makes it clear they're not going to do that any longer? I mean, Joe's exactly right. I mean, that historically has been the case when the market is not favorable to government debt because who wants a half percent on their money? I mean, who would buy a T-bill or a government bond if you're making a half percent or one percent on your money? Now, it's all of a sudden a little bit more attractive at three and a half, four percent. But but I'm making a hypothetical argument. Let, let's assume, for argument's sake, let's assume the Fed is serious this time. I don't know if they are or not. I don't have any idea. I have reason to believe in some things I've read that Jerome Powell has said Convince me that he's not going to let his legacy be the guy that allowed this to go on forever. He's confessed to some degree his mistake. And somebody said, well, I've not heard him confess to anything. Nobody's raising rates faster than they've ever been raised before. That's a pretty good admission as far as I'm concerned. The guy's not calling a press conference and say, hey, for the last three years, I've blown it. But I'm doing right by the American economy and the American taxpayer and the American you know, governmental system by doing what I'm doing now, raising rates faster than they've ever been raised before, your, your actions are louder than your words. And his actions clearly tell me that Powell realizes he and his cadre of economists have made a monumental mistake in allowing the easy money policies to stay in place. And by that, I mean quantitative easing and 0% interest are in the neighborhood of 0% interest. And he's not going to allow that to be um, how his Fed or his time at the Fed has been defined. Now, can he stand against some of the forces that will organize um, the lady, excuse me, the, um, the, 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 the federal bank, or excuse me, the uh, central bank of England couldn't stand against it. I mean, they blamed some corporate tax cuts, some austerity policies. Um, I mean, this what was her name? Tuss, T-U-S-S, the new prime minister of England. I mean, she's to blame now. It's conservative government, you know, the, the conservatives have been in support of expansion, expansionist government as much as, as the liberals have. And here comes this lady that says we're going to do some things to curtail spending, get our financial house back in order, and 
there, there are a lot of bond investments. There are a lot of pension investments made in some of the bond apparatuses, uh, the gilts. I mean, ours would be T-bills and bonds and whatnot. Theirs are in the English version. It's called gilts, G-I-L-T-S. And they began to see some breaking down. I mean, they, they really did. I mean, there was some serious. It would have been like Lehman and Bear Stearns when the financial uh, meltdown of 2007 and eight in America, they began to see some breaking down of some of the technical fundamentals in um, the, um, the England trade markets. And some of the holders of pension funds went and said, hey, I mean, do you see what's happening? Yeah. And they blinked. I mean, they, they just blinked. Um, the Fed may blink. I've got a buddy of mine. In the financial planning business, he thinks the Fed will blink. He thinks the unemployment numbers will spook. And if, and if you really think about it, I think I sent a couple of texts out to friends of mine who are interested in these sorts of conversations. When you really think about it, I want to make sure I get these texts just right. It's kind of an interesting thing I heard or read yesterday in Bloomberg. Uh, I know one person I sent it to. Uh, here you go. The Fed won't stop tightening until the unemployment number goes up. So the Wall Streeters are rooting for people to lose their job so we can get back to free money and quantitative easing. That's really, really? where we are. No, but that's where we are. If, if, if the Wall Streeters believe that the, the unemployment, if the unemployment was to rapidly tick up, I mean, it may freak some people out. Hey, man, we got a real problem here. Not only do we have, you know, the debt issue or the quantitative, or excuse me, the Fed's balance sheet issue, we've all of a sudden got an unemployment issue. So, so when you think about it, if you're on Wall Street and, uh, and you've hitched your wagon to easy money and you've hitched your wagon to a belief that Wall Street will always get the advantage over Main Street, then you're basically arguing or you're praying for or pulling for people to lose their job so the unemployment number can get um, high enough to get the Fed's attention. So the Fed will say, hey, got to pump the brakes now. I mean, it's obvious we've a mission accomplished. Enough people have lost their job to go back to some sort of easy money policy, I, I think that's where we are. I mean, I think we've, the, the biggest problem with wealth inequality in America, but I mean, it's complicated. And I'm not saying it's all about the Fed. It's not all about the Fed. It's it's very, 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 very complicated. How many variables was that? Yeah, it might've been one more. Might need one. It's very, 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 very complicated. Whoa, and that's complicated. But, 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 but the matter of wealth inequality, it, I mean, it's not just a, an issue of, you know, lazy people won't get up and go to work and hardworking people do get up and go to work. I mean, I'd love for it to be that simple. I mean, I'd love for the American economy to operate on, you know, Rev gets up earlier than Ken, stays later than Ken, works harder than Ken, is a little more diligent than Ken. Therefore, I mean, that's still a big part of it. There's no question about that. I mean, there is no doubt that people who work harder on average are rewarded, you know, more than those who don't. But we have, we got to admit how distorted this economy is. And it's not because of Rev and Ken. It's these, you know, the closest thing to masters of the universe in the world today are central bankers. And we found out in England how much influence they can have one way or the other. I mean, I think I made a prediction. When the market rallied, and you're going to have some of these bear run rallies. I mean, when the market's in a bear run, it doesn't mean it sells off every day. I think Larry gave a good analogy yesterday. I mean, you can't, I mean, it's, there's a reason it's called a hundred yard sprint and not a 26 mile sprint. I mean, one's a marathon. You got to pace yourself. Um, unless you Khashoggi, do you see where he broke his own record by like 30 seconds? No. It's stupid. I mean, the dude runs <laughs> at a stupid, stupid pace. I mean, he's, he's wearing some supersonic Nike shoe now. Some, you know, it's got some cushion in it, and they think it absolutely, I mean, they, they really believe this, Rev. They can, They think it propels him forward. I mean, they've designed a shoe specifically for him. Wow. There's a treadway, excuse me, a treadmill. There's a treadmill that they're traveling the country with 
uh, with Nike. And Nike's got this demo that they carry. I mean, you probably won't see it here, but it's in a major, major markets. And the treadmill is going as fast as Khashoggi's average pace in a marathon. And it's funny to watch normal people run that pace for 30 seconds. <laughs> and it nearly throws them off the back of the thing. I mean, he, he runs that pace at a 26. Yeah, but he, he runs, I think it's two minute, two hours, one minute and 12 seconds. I mean, I think he was four minutes ahead wow. of everybody. Um, yeah, I mean, just unbelievable pace that he runs. So, yeah, I mean, Khashoggi, I mean, he's a different animal. But, but most people can't run 26 miles like they can 100 yards. So when you see a rally within a bear market, I mean, that's, that's a rest. I mean, that's everybody sitting on a rock somewhere saying, got to catch my breath. And, and, the, and the bulls kind of see an opportunity, and then up comes, the, you know, the market runs up another four or five or 600 points. But I think I said the day of or the morning of that we'll give all of that back. And we did. We gave all of that back and more yesterday. I think the market was off, what, 600 points, 580-some-odd points yesterday. How much more bleeding is there to be done? I don't have any idea. I, I, you know, I, 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 that's what I like about Reggie Armstrong. I mean, Reggie will say, I don't know. I mean, you know, my my evaluations say this. Uh, the, the group of people I read and trust and try and understand say this, but I don't have any idea where this market's going, where this market's headed. But there, there are a lot of people in the financial sector who believe that the unemployment number or some other metric, I mean, it, yeah, I said earlier this week, a credit event. I mean, I think a credit event would get Powell's attention quicker than increased unemployment. And, and what is a credit event? That means that a formidable company, someone that you and I are very aware of, believe that we're so established, they can never say we're having trouble paying our debt. We could pay the debt at 1.5%. I'm talking about LIBOR and some of these other rates, exchange rates and overnight paper. I mean, we could pay the debt at 1.5%, 2%. We can't service the debt at 6%. We can't service the debt at 5.5%. And when one of these iconic names are having a problem servicing their debt, that is a credit event. I mean, it was an event in all of our lives, whether we admit it or not, when Lehman failed. I mean, we're living in a post-world without Lehman. I mean, you may say, I don't care what happened to Lehman, and maybe you do. But your life today, if you have any investment interest at all, remembers that day. I mean, that, that was, a, um, that, that was a, a monumental moment in American finance and politics, for that matter, when layman fell. And if something like that happened, if something, if General Electric said, we can't meet, I mean, our, our debt obligations are 50 or $60 million more a month than they were prior to the Fed's actions, th that could cause someone at the Fed, Jerome Powell, to say, hey, we got to slow this down. I mean, we can't just tear the, we know we've got to cause some devastation in the economy. We know we've got to cause a, a soft landed recession. But we can't, I can't be the guy that drives 10% of businesses into the ground. I, I can't do that. Now, now, once again, I'm not Jerome Powell. I don't know what side of the bed he wakes up on. I don't know how he brushes his hair. I don't know how, what he drives to work or who drives him to work. Don't have any idea what makes that man tick. But everything I've read and every sense I have today of him leads me to believe that he knows he's made a mistake. And he's trying to right that wrong. Maybe he's doing it too fast. He doesn't think he is. We shall see. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Hey, there's a scene in Yellowstone. You know who John Dutton is? He's a central figure. Kevin Costner. I haven't watched in Yellowstone. That there's a scene. I wrote it down this morning. Handwrite. John Dutton said, I am the opposite of progress. I am the wall it bashes against. And I will not be the one who breaks. 
Now, if anybody knows Yellowstone, anybody understands the personality that is John Dutton, that sounds exactly like Dutton. And I was thinking about Jerome Powell. I mean, Jerome Powell's not a rancher. Jerome Powell's not a cowboy. But Jerome Powell's not an academic. That's what we need to understand. Jerome Powell is a lawyer from the private sector. By the private sector, I mean the financial community. I mean, I think he worked at uh, Citibank or J.P. Morgan, one of these financial institutions, but he was on their legal team. He was not their chief counsel, but a member of their um, council, and he's not an academic. And I think some of the academics are nervous about Jerome Powell. Janet Yellen's an academic. Bernanke was a, an academic. Greenspan was an academic. This guy's not an academic. Now, now, what does that mean? I don't know, except he's being vi- advised by 785 academics. By and large, his economist uh, at the Board of Governors and, and the um, Federal Open Markets Committee, I mean, they've got so many subdivisions within the Federal Reserve, but, but the, the, this story is going to be the driver of the election. I've had several people tell me this week, why are you paying so much attention to the Federal Reserve when we've got midterm elections and you host a political radio? There's nothing more political right now than the Fed. Why? Because the economy and inflation are why people are going to cast ballots. But I saw yesterday in Pennsylvania some numbers that are very encouraging to Republicans, extremely encouraging to Republicans. I had convinced myself that Masters in Arizona and Oz in Pennsylvania had become too far a reach. And I don't any longer. Not after reading some of the um, polling, some of the generic polling. I'll give an example. In Pennsylvania, um, education in schools top abortion by 15 percentage points. Of the top two issues are by far. This is an ABC News, Washington Post poll. Um, it's not about Fetterman and Oz. It's more about the the issues that will drive you to vote for this candidate or the other. And it's all about inflation. It's all about the economy. Education in schools outpace abortion by 15 percentage points. In the competitive congressional districts in, in Pennsylvania, the Republican is up 21 percentage points. I'm just not buying the polls, guys. I think the Republican, I mean, the Republican historically has outperformed the poll by two and a half to four points. I think we're at a four to six point overperforming. Now, I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if the methodology is trying to create a narrative to, um, you know, create uh, turnout decline or some, I don't know, concern, anxiety amongst the electorate, and maybe they don't go to the poll. I have no idea what some of these polling companies are up to. I'd like to believe they're just honestly making mistakes. I'd like to believe that ABC News and Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and but NBC News, well, I, mean, I don't know what to believe. I mean, I really don't. I, mean, I think they oversample Democrats. I think they undersample Trump supporting Republicans. And I'll give them a little credit. It's hard to find a Trump Republican, to be honest, with a pollster. I mean, that's kind of the inside joke. The, the Trump Republican loves to lie to the pollster. Does the Trump Republican tell the pollster, I'm undecided, or does the Trump pollster tell the uh or does the trump voter tell the pollster i'm voting for biden or i'm voting for the democrat it's a little bit of an inside joke with a lot of these trump voters and and i think robert's done a better job than anybody at trafalgar of identifying when they're telling you the truth and when they're not and and i do believe we've always lived in a world where the republican outperforms the poll by somewhere between two and a half four points four points on the best of times if you're a republican two and a half in normal times i think we're in a four to six cycle but I think the Republican candidate, Blake Masters included, can win because they're within that margin of error. They say the margin of error is two and a half. I think the margin of error is an underrepresentation of the Republican vote by at least four points 
maybe as many as six percentage points. The Republican lean districts in Pennsylvania are plus 24. The, 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 the up for grabs district, what they call the competitive races, the Republicans up 21. How can that be an odds behind? I mean, I can't square that up. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Got about a minute, minute and a half. DW in Florence. Hey, Don. Hey, guys. Uh, Gamecocks won a big one last night. Yep. Scored 50. Yep, they did. Uh, go Tigers for Saturday. And uh, how about my boy uh, hitting 61 home runs, Mr. Judge? That's pretty big for the greatest franchise of all time. So, uh, <laughs> so I'll throw that in there while I'm DW, as an old man, as an old man like yourself, do you want him to hit 62? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I like him 6'2". Okay. And break Maris' record. Like break Maris' record? Yeah, yeah, that's the new blood for us. What you got to do? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for him. To, as long as he's uh, doing what he's supposed to do and the way he's doing it, that's great. So I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. Good deal. Thank you, DW. So, oh, got, wait a minute. Wait okay, a minute. Go ahead. Two I'm, seconds. Yeah, sure you do. That's all right. Let's say this. Um, talking about people telling truth and what to believe and what to believe, what not to believe. I don't believe there's any truth in any of them. I think they'll say and do anything they can say to get their way on stuff, number one. Are you there? Yeah, we I'm lost you. Yeah, yeah, we we lost yeah. you. You got about 20 seconds. Okay, well, I'm just saying that same way. Like, uh, you know, all, all that's going on, can't believe them. If you start telling the truth, things will change. If you keep lying, it'll stay the same. Thank you, man. You Thank you, DW. Be good. 27 world championships. That's the number we left out. The most successful professional sports sports franchise in oh, American yeah. sports history. The New York Yankees have won 27 world championships. Take a break. Back in a minute. See, I don't know how you do this in balance, respect, and humor. Because yesterday, I argued, we played the Biden audio of recognizing a former member of Congress who was deceased um, at a function. And I think it was there on behalf. It was like a uh, White House conference on food, nutrition, health he publicly acknowledged some elected officials and then um where's jackie became a part of that the media i mean the mainstream the press corps actually took um what's her name the black lesbian kareen yeah, took, took her to task yesterday um trying to get to the bottom of what the president was thinking T- top of mind was just a consistent answer back and forth and back and forth we have with us this morning a commentator from young voices lillian tara lillian good morning how are you Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks so much. So what do we make of um, Jackie? Are you here? Where is Jackie? Was it an honest faux pas or is there something there uh, that we should be more alarmed or bothered by? I don't think that this is anything out of the ordinary for what we've seen with the Biden administration. Um, what we did see was President Biden, you know, making some comments, asking to see if the if the Congresswoman was in the room. She obviously passed away. Uh, she was in a car crash on August third, and so we see the White House press secretary kind of trying to cover up for this. Um, but I think that they are kind of aware that this was this was a slip up, though they did not actively acknowledge that at the time. But we've seen slip-ups. I mean, presidents slip up. I mean, I slip up. You slip up. We all slip up. But but none of us are presidents. I mean, there has to be a certain certain expectation of a president's cognitive abilities. And it looks to me like, um, I want to be respectful and honest here, but it looks to me like there are legitimate concerns and honest questions to be answered by this White House about Joe Biden's cognitive state. I think personally, I would agree with you. Um, I know that uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, was having a lot of trouble kind of covering up for this. She said that, you know, um, 
that the congresswoman was on the top of mind for the president, and it's natural, and he's, you know, looking forward to discussing her legacy of public service. Um, however, we did see a lot of the journalists in the room kind of pushing her more on that, though she did not get a chance to answer. Um, I, I, I would agree. I think that uh, President Biden was not <laughs> not in the right headspace to be answering questions, given that he, he wasn't aware that she had passed away. He himself actually had put out a statement earlier um, last month after her passing. Um, but the fact that he didn't remember is, is a little bit concerning, in my opinion. Lillian, what is Young Voices? So Young Voices is an organization that pitches liberty-minded uh, students and young people for media events and um, publications. And so we are very mission-focused and, and it's a great organization. Why are we not doing as well? And by the way, I'm talking about conservatives, people who believe in right-of-center government. Why are we not doing as well with young people as I wish we were? I've thought about this question a lot myself, actually. I think it has something to do with the fact that Conservatism is associated with things like experience um, and order and security, and these are these are values that have stood the test of time, but they're not as appealing to young people who especially have been raised in the kind of luxury of the West. Um, and so we've kind of grown up and we've had everything. And so uh, in many cases, liberalism is a luxury, and it's something that young people can afford, and, and they get to try new things, and they never have the inclination to to recognize that there are experiences that they can learn from. And, and it's a very humbling philosophy is, is, is my conclusion that doesn't necessarily draw a lot of young people. Well explained. Thank you, Lily, and appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You know, it's, it's interesting. We had a race here in South Carolina that I'm going to pay close, close attention to. For what, I mean, there, there's no doubt the macro phase versus the Republican. I mean, there's no doubt about it. When you look at uh, the economy, Republican plus 16, uh, inflation, the uh, Republican plus 19, you look at abortion, I mean, obviously the Republicans are underwater there because they've been painted as extremists on abortion. But we're going to have a gubernatorial race in South Carolina that's going to feature a young, charismatic, um, photogenic young candidate in uh, Joe Cunningham against a guy who's been there forever in Henry McMaster. Now, Henry is going to win because South Carolina is a red state. There, there's no chance at all of Joe Cunningham becoming governor of South Carolina. Some of his supporters don't want to hear that. But, but it's going to be interesting because he's got an ad out today, and it has been running for a couple of weeks now, where he centers and focuses on the legalization of marijuana and sports betting and term limits and age limits. How many Trump voters are opposed to the legalization of marijuana? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. I've never mm. seen a vote on that. I mean, I've argued before the Trump voter is not a Republican voter. The Trump voter is a Trump voter. Obviously, in the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap. But I think Joe Cunningham's message is very interesting. Legalize marijuana. I'm opposed to that. Legalize sports betting. I'm for that. Term limits. I'm for that. Age limits. I'm for that. So Joe Cunningham, the Democrat nominee for governor in South Carolina, is batting 750 with me. And I could, I mean, you know, I could argue that legalization of marijuana, if I felt we'd leave it a medicinal and, and some very limited uses, I just don't buy that. I think the industry itself would figure out a way to make it, you know, it medicinal would turn into recreational and recreational would turn into mainstream. And, you know, it's just so, so as a former politician who believes he has some grasp of government creep, legalizing marijuana concerns me. I mean, it just does. I, I don't want a stoned nation. But, but I got a libertarian streak about me that says, well, I mean, if a man wants to smoke marijuana, he should be allowed to smoke marijuana. I get that. I mean, I think that's a very fair debate. I think that's a very legitimate debate to be had. But, but when you look at Joe Cunningham, the, the Democrat nominee of South Carolina, 
I think that the majority of Trump voters may agree with all four of those stances that Joe Cunningham has. Now, he's got the misfortune this election cycle of having a D beside his name. But if this were an election where the Democrats kind of had the tailwind, in other words, the Republicans have been in charge of inflation and a bad economy and out of control spending, I think this would be a very, very interesting race. The macro is the reason, the national narrative is the reason Joe Cunningham's going to lose. But I think it's going to be a much closer, ah, much closer, somewhat closer race than many expected to be. South Carolina is kind of a 55-45 state. In these conditions, it would probably be a 56-44 kind of state. I'll go on the record, and I think this race will be 53-47. I mean, I don't think it's 52-48, and I don't think it's all about abortion. I mean, I've heard some conversations of female voters who say, you know, that they're voting for Cunningham because he's, you know, he's got a, a, a more liberal stance on abortion. I think a lot of you voting for Cunningham because he's nicer looking than Henry, and he's a much younger guy. Now, now the women don't want to admit that, but I mean, you know, there, there, there's some, I mean, I've told you before, I'm on the record. I'd vote for Ashley Judd in a minute over Mitch McConnell. You know, call me what you choose to call me. Shallow and, and senseless, guilty as charged. But, but there, there are these personal proclivities we have that lead us down certain roads. Um, but, but I just think Joe Cunningham's message is very interesting, not to the Republican voter. I mean, you're not going to Bob Jones University and support gambling and marijuana or, or speaking in support of defense speak in support of legalizing marijuana and and sports betting but to the trump voter in ori county the trump voter in charleston county the trump voter in beaufort county the trump voter in lexington county i didn't say they're gop voter i mean i didn't say the guy that never misses a chance to vote for a republican i'm talking about the guy that showed up about you know two cycles ago and is all of a sudden courted by every political movement in America, and they still don't really know who they are. I mean, they're from here and there and yonder. They believe this, and they believe that, and they believe something else. They, they really believe in political disruption. And Cunningham is selling them on the idea of younger blood, kind of a libertarian perspective as a Democrat. And he's got some pretty out-of-whack uh, views with abortion. There's a reason Joe's not talking about abortion. I mean, he knows he's got to get independent voters in South Carolina. If he were in a blue state, obviously he'd be talking about abortion, but he's not. Um, Joe's fairly liberal on abortion, far too liberal for me. But but on those four issues that he's made kind of this closing argument of this campaign, I think he hits a nerve with the Trump voter. Is a Trump voter going to consider voting for a younger Democrat who wants to legalize marijuana, legalize sports betting, Make term limits and age limits. You know what the age limit is. I mean, that's a jab at Henry. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, the age limit term limit is all about, you know, look who I'm running against. I think in his ad, he says, Governor McMaster has been a candidate for political office longer than I've been alive. And I just think the all Trump right. voter goes, he's right. I mean, he, he's right about that. Now, once again, we are a red state. Henry's going to win because of the macro, but it's going to be a very, it's going to be a more closely contested race than you would expect it to be because of these issues that I think Cunningham has identified and the Trump voter slash Republican. I mean, it, you know, the Trump voter is overwhelmingly a Republican, but not in lockstep. And and I, it's going to be very interesting to me watch. I mean, if it weren't for the macro, this could be a toss-up. I mean, this really could be the day a Democrat runs an extremely competitive race in South Carolina, in deep red South Carolina, but... The economy, inflation, out-of-control spending, 
are going to be pinned on on the Democrats. And because of that, Henry's going to win. Uh, I'm not saying Henry's been a good or bad governor. I mean, I think Henry's been a pretty good governor. I mean, I took some exception to what he did early in the pandemic, but he, he righted that wrong quicker than most governors across the country did. I think DeSantis hit the home run. But, you know, he got declared no lockdown. Remember uh, Dr. Death DeSantis or, you know, oh, Governor yeah. Death Governor or Death. whatever they called him because he wouldn't lock down, wouldn't shut down, wouldn't uh, push back on all the federal government uh, provisions. Henry pushed back on some of those, but not all. And I think there's some libertarianism out there that still blame him for some of the moderate shutdowns we had here in South Carolina. And what, what do you blame Joe Cunningham for? Nothing. I mean, he's a fresh face. He's a new dude. I mean, he was a congressman from uh, Charleston, and then he lost to Nancy Mace. But but if you take, I mean, if you take the 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 block of vote, the Republican vote east of I ninety five. We're talking about the coast. I mean, there's a bunch of them. I mean, they're a they're not real social conservatives. I mean, they're the Giuliani Republican. They're they're the transplants. They're the transients. They're those who showed up, you know, at the Grand Strand or down around the coast from where freehold comes from. And I tell you the story. I'm going to go to a sports bar in Polly's Island. There's minimal representation of Clemson and Carolina. There's far more of the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, the new England Patriots, the Philadelphia Eagles, the New York Yankees, the green Bay Packers, the Ohio state Buckeyes, the biggest Ohio state fan club not located in Ohio is in Horry County. <laughs> the not biggest, surprised. the biggest Michigan Wolverine fan club outside of Michigan is in Horry County, South Carolina. Yeah, the license plates yeah. tip you off to that. So, so, I mean, it's just going to be kind of interesting. And if not for the macro, this could be truly a toss-up. Hmm. And and I, I just think Joe's doing a good job of closing with the right point, and he's targeting the Trump voter. I mean, he's, he's not talking he's about— he's wearing his button-down shirts with the rolled-up well, sleeves. Of course he is. Know, but, but he's, cool and youthful. But, but his message is not for the Republican voter. His message is for the Trump voter. He knows he is. Excuse me. He knows he has no chance to get the Democrat. Excuse me to get the Republican to vote for him. He believes he has a shot to get a certain percentage of the Republicans. What do the Republicans say over and over? I'm tired of the old guard. I'm tired of the old guard. I'm tired of the. Old. I'm not talking about the the you know the the dying the wool Republican. I'm talking about the Trump Republican, the guy that just shows up, the lady that just shows up. I mean, they they showed up because of Trump. I mean, they, you know, they're they're bothered by the career politician. So Cunningham's strategy to me is dead on. And I'm thinking of myself as a Trump Republican. I mean, I, I could I could argue on um, medical marijuana, but but I'm probably if, if I had to vote today to legalize marijuana or not, I'd vote against. And I know that goes against my libertarian strain, my libertarian belief. But I just look at the pragmatic side of uh, of allowing a mind altering drug to be more in the mainstream. I just think that's bad for the country. I mean, I, I get the argument. I understand. I mean, I, I certainly and accept that that is a legitimate argument to be made. But why we don't have sports betting in South Carolina is beyond me. Don't have any idea. I mean, that would be a boom to the economy. We've got a tourist attraction on the Grand Strand. I mean, they, you know, you have major capital infusion by big companies. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, gambling halls and parlors in the back rooms of hotels. I'm talking about full-fledged um, bright light gambling bright light sports betting, paramutual betting. But I think all those things would benefit the state of South Carolina. Um, And I'm certainly for age limits and term limits, but I'm not for the Democrat because I just, I know where the Democrats stand on some of these other spending issues, but Joe's not talking about spending. He's not talking about abortion. He's talking about the, um, the issues that he believes he has something in common, not with the upstate Republican voter, but with rather the Trump 
kind of world in orbit of um, of Republican politics. 843-661-0937 is our number. Talking about midterms, talking about some of the polling I've read, it's still one of the most frustrating parts of this cycle has been uh, Blake Masters' inability to gain the support of independents. It irks me to no end. I mean, I read polls, and, and, I, and I talk to Robert, and I read polls, and I talk to some of these other folks. Masters, for whatever reason, has not been able to relate to the independent voter in, uh, in Pennsylvania, If you, excuse me, in, uh, in Arizona. If you'd asked me two weeks ago, who was the least likely Republican to win in some of these competitive races, it would have been Oz. You ask me today, it's probably Masters, because I've really? read some of this, um, some of this, uh, I don't know, Red, what I call underreporting, and I think the Pennsylvania Republican Party, I mean, you, you've had some swings. I'll give you an example, some data here real quick. Um, registered voters changing their party in Bucks County uh, in, in Pennsylvania. People changing their party affiliation favors the Republican about two to one. When you go to Butler County, uh, that's where Pittsburgh is. Um, two to one Republicans over Democrats and changing Allegheny County. I mean, those will be three of the most populated counties in, uh, in Pennsylvania In Allegheny County. It's about 60, 40, not two to one, but about 60, 40 in favor of Democrats switching to Republican, uh, two to one in Bucks County, two to one in Butler County. And then you talk about the, um, the competitive districts in Pennsylvania, the Republican leads by 21 percentage points there's something we're missing in pennsylvania that the head-to-head polling is not picking up on i'm convinced of that and and this is some of this underreported data it, it, it does suggest to me that oz has a much better chance in pennsylvania than i've given him credit for um there is no incumbent issue there you've got kelly the incumbent in arizona and masters who i think embodies and represents america first better than any candidate including jd vance i mean if you look at america first Let's build a robot and call it an America First senator and get them elected. The robot looks like Blake Masters. Then why is he having trouble? Don't know. I think he's a quirky guy. I think his personality is a little bit different. I think he's a little bit like Peter Thiel, socially awkward, um, not real comfortable in crowds, um, appears to be wonky at times, um, not very relatable. What did you do? Well, I, was, I ran a hedge fund and I worked for Palantir. Hmm, okay. I didn't. <laughs> You know what I mean? I, I didn't. Um, Oz has a personality, a persona about him. Been on television a couple of decades, understands how to play to that camera, how to become relatable, whether it is or not. I mean, it knows how to become relatable. And, and when I read some of the data out of Arizona, it just appears to me that Masters is having a hard time convincing independents that I'm not a robot. I'm not a wonk. I mean, he is a wonk. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's a very wonkish, smart guy. There, there's no apology necessary for being a smart, wonkish um, you know, uh, multimillionaire who worked in the teal orbit, but but it's you, you got to get down on that level. You got to embrace your voters. You got to relate to your voters where they are. You can't ask every voter to come where you are. You got to go meet them where they are. And it looks to me, JD Vance is doing a good job of that. Blake Masters is having a hard time in um in Arizona. So if I were handicapping those two as the, uh, I mean, I think those are the two least likely to go the Republican. I, mean, I think they have a chance in both. But I think if I were handicapping today, I would reverse where I had Pennsylvania with Arizona. I think of all the competitive races, Blake Masters has the least likely chance to win. Dr. Oz has the second least likely chance to win. Um, I get Wisconsin. I just don't buy it.
I mean, I've heard the debate. Johnson's in trouble. I don't buy it. I'm sorry. I just do not buy the Wisconsin polling. Ohio's red. J.D. Vance is going to be a senator. Rubio's going to be a senator. Um, Bud in, in North Carolina is going to be a senator. I'm convinced now that Walker is going to be a senator in Georgia. Arizona and Pennsylvania are still out there. And, and I'd, I'd love to be more optimistic than I am, but it's hard. I mean, it really and truly is. It's less hard today when you read some of this underreported data in Pennsylvania that shows some of the um, the voter re-registering and, and the, um, in the competitive districts. I mean, in the Republican-leaning districts, the Republicans up 24. In the competitive districts, the Republicans up 21. How can Oz not win if those numbers are right? Take a break. Back in a minute. As the son of an entrepreneur and someone who started a manufacturing business back in the mid-60s, I can't imagine if my dad were alive today what he would, how his reactions would be to government policy. I mean, I really, my brother and I were talking a couple of weeks ago when I said, I mean, he'd be in prison. I mean, I'm sure of it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. He would lose his forever loving mind if as a small business owner, he knew he had to check with the government and were, I mean, because he died in 04. I mean, we were headed that way, but it was nowhere near the sort of um, oversight the government is demanding of small businesses. They take another step. Yesterday, the Treasury Department is going to create a database that will contain a lot of the personal information of the owners of someone in excess of 30 million U.S. businesses. They say they're combating illicit financing and Russian oligarchs and all these other sorts of things. The folks I heard from yesterday in entrepreneur land were not very optimistic about the government being able to check its own uh, power and authority. Ryan Schmelz, Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is with us in our nation's capital. Ryan, explain exactly what the Treasury Department is going to do when it collects all this information on all these small business owners. Right. So, so based on what you said, the 32 million U.S. businesses that are going to have to be put into this database with the Treasury Department, the United States government, uh, pretty much they're going to have to provide them with details on their owners and the o- others who benefit from them. And that regulation w- uh, was finalized yesterday. But the intent here is to peel back the layers of ownership that can hide assets that were uh, obtained illegally. What if you, so, so guilty until, excuse me, innocent until proven, not, that's not the case any longer. We're making every small business owner that falls into this category, whether they have a history of illicit behavior, a history of um, sheltering or embezzling. I mean, if your books are clean, you're still got to be a part of this data gathering. Right. And I guess one of the justifications that were used here is that small businesses are targeted because shell companies often use them to hide illegally obtained assets, uh, and especially when they tend to have few employees. Um, and, and also, you know, the, more of the justification here is that the Treasury Department doesn't think this burden's going to be uh, as bureaucratic as what might be reported. You know, they think it'll cost about $85 per business. Um, and it will have a massive benefit to law enforcement. So that's some of the justification uh, that's been thrown out there. What are they basing the $85 per business on? I mean, the pe- people are, I mean, the uh, business community in particular are highly skeptical of government saying something is going to cost one thing and it's going to perform one activity. It normally costs a lot more and perform a lot of different sorts of activities. So how do you talk the business community out of being so skeptical about what the government is saying? Right. That, 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 that's something I really don't know, because, yeah, it, the, the number it was, was given by the Treasury Department, that, that was based off of their estimate. Um, 
But, you know, they, they think that this is going to st- solve the problem. That is, you know, uh, preventing more illegally obtained assets from getting onto the market. Um, and they think that law enforcement is going to really benefit here. So it, it, it's really hard to say. Did law enforcement make this request or this came from the White House? Um, so I'm sure there were some law enforcement agencies involved in it. It, it was a bipartisan piece of legislation. It, it's been worked on by, I believe, Marco Rubio was involved as well as Elizabeth Warren. So it, it, it's gotten bipartisan support in Congress um, and, and, and it's been something that, that Congress, I think, has been trying to address for some time now. I just don't think the general public really knew how many, uh, how many, how few employees a lot of the businesses that were going to be put in the database were going to be. Yeah. Is there a threshold of employees, a threshold of um, uh, what I'll, you know, revenues, overall revenues in a year? I mean, who's included in this $32 million? Pretty much it's most, it's most American businesses with fewer than 20 employees. So everybody. Those are the ones you're going to have to re- it, that essentially it, it's a good it's a good portion of them that that's for sure and and they're going to have to register with the government by uh, january 1st 2024 okay thank you ryan appreciate your time hey absolutely thank you have a great weekend you do the same so there's a um there's a registry i mean how, how weird is this there's a registry now that you as a business owner i mean you could be a sole proprietor a uh, one-man shop but you've got a file um with, with these other 32 million businesses for your business to be, you know, in the loop, mm. uh, in good graces of the federal government, the National Federation of Independent Businesses uh, in February of this past year, because this has been a kind of an ongoing debate. I mean, they raised some of the privacy concern about the rule. Um, there, there's a there's a financial crimes enforcement network, believe it or not, um, which is uh, tasked with creating the database. So you got a government agency. Now, Ryan said it's non bureaucratic. Huh? You take that for what it's worth, but um. But they, they profess that they will safeguard your information, that your information will not be sold, be made available. Um, it will, you know, they, they will not randomly choose you to come after. Uh, but, they, you know, the federal government doesn't trust business. I mean, they just don't. They're, they're more than well willing to take money that business makes and confiscate a certain percentage to pay for all the wonderful programs they like. Guys, the public sector, trust me here, please. I know the hurricane's got a lot of people sidetracked and, and paying, and you should. I mean, pay more attention to the hurricane today than, than me. But but over the past 25 or 30 years, the public sector has declared war on the private sector. I mean, the goose that laid the golden egg is under attack by those who want more or all of that golden egg. I mean, that's where we are. And it doesn't mean everybody in the public sector is bad. It, I'm, that's not what I'm arguing. But in general, on average, the public sector has declared war on the private sector. So if you're one of these tens of millions of U.S. companies with 20 or fewer employees, you're going to be required to provide the government with details of who the owners are, what sort of benefits they get from this business under a regulation that will become final today, excuse me, became final yesterday. And um, and, and they say it's intended to peel back the layers of ownership that hide unlawfully obtained assets they're they're looking for of course they're looking for russian oligarchs mm-hmm. yeah, um, what else might they use that information well of course i mean it's, it's just you know um i'll read this in fortune magazine the treasury department says it was moving to create a database that will contain personal information on the owners of at least 32 million u.s businesses as part of an effort to combat illicit finance treasury officials said the new rule represents a sea change in the world of corporate transparency so this is all about corporate transparency 
I mean, it, it has nothing to do with the government trying to understand exactly what business is. It's another layer of regulation. It's another layer of bureaucracy. And, and the number $85, I mean, Ryan even said, I don't know where that number came from. I mean, it sounded like an affordable number. So the argument is the federal government is going to, it's going to cost a business about $85. Well, I mean, at one time, the income tax was 1%. What is it now? Mm-hmm. We debate whether it should be 50% or not. It's yet another barrier for somebody who is interested in starting a business, just another layer of bureaucracy and reporting and the government being all up well, in I mean, your business. To, but, but, to me, right? it, but, but to me, the center of this debate is it's none of your business how I run my I – mean, Exactly. It, 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 I mean, I, we run our business as we see fit. I mean, it's a little bit like the Trump world. Trump got in trouble. See, and I, I, I got to be careful here, but – when Trump makes a deal with his CFO to pay for his college, to me, that's a perk. That's not a taxable event. I mean, I understand the way the tax law was written, the codes and all these good stuff. But I mean, if Donald Trump runs a multi-billion dollar business and Donald Trump's CFO has been a loyal and dedicated employee and a productive and, and performing employee, and Trump wants to pay for that CFO's kid's college, to me, that's a non-taxable event. I mean, that's a guy who earned the respect of his boss, and his boss wants to do something gracious and kind. But in the world of IRS and tax code and, and the implementation of tax code, the obedience to tax code, I mean, this is what this will end up being. I mean, they will harass business owners. It gives the federal government the authority to further harass business owners, and, and business owners are getting to the point that they've had enough of this. I mean, they, they feel they have been so attacked and assaulted by the government over COVID. I mean, imagine you can't open your business. Well, now that you got it back open, we need to see inside your business to know what you're doing for your fellow employees or co-owners. Just or to make sure. Just you're to make sure to you're something. doing it the way we say it needs to be done. And guys, there's going to, that leads to an eventual revolution. I mean, there's no doubt about that. People will absorb that until they won't do it any longer. I mean, the old saying, it works until it doesn't work anymore. But this is another step in. Now, now here's the statement from Janet Yellen. You ready? But this is exactly the lady we should trust with our small business fate and future. I mean, why not Janet Yellen? (laughs) I mean, when you think of small business productivity and the government being, you know, um, understanding and sympathetic to the advancement of small business, why wouldn't we trust Janet Yellen? She says this rule will make it harder for criminals, organized crime, uh, rings and other illicit actors to hide their identities and launder their money through the financial system. It will help strengthen our national security by making it more difficult for oligarchs, terrorists, the global threats. I mean, all that sensationalism, but it's going to make life more complicated for the small business owner. We have with us, if I'm not mistaken, WMBF meteorologist Andrew Dockery. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Hey, we are busy. How are you? We are busy, and we're concerned, and we don't know which way is up. The storm looks like it's going this way, and then it looks like it's going that way. What is the latest, Andrew? And then I've got a couple of questions, please, sir. So let me tell you this. I think we're now starting to see that transition period. If you look on any radar, whatever app you're using, uh, there is a basically line of storms that has the curve effect of the circulation. That is the eye wall. It looks very healthy, and it looks like it's starting to turn to the north. Now, the forecast called for that. That's not a concern at this point. But the concern is when that arrives, that's going to be the piece of energy that will bring in hurricane-force winds somewhere across our area. Uh, I'll be honest at this point, landfall for us, and Jamie and I have been talking about it this morning, looks to be somewhere from Georgetown, give or take – 
10 to 20 miles south or north. Uh, basically, what we could tell you is wherever that makes landfall, due north is going to pick up on a lot more rain than forecast, which we knew that would happen, and then also pick up on some winds that are strong as could be. That should make landfall a little bit later, I would say closer to lunchtime, maybe early afternoon. Remember, this thing is crawling at this point about eight miles per hour on the latest update. We'll get a new update here in 20 minutes too, which should kind of help us tell the story. Jamie, does it, I mean, for, forgive my ignorance, but there's a, there's a dirty side of a storm and a clean side of the storm. Or are we yeah. teetering on which side of the storm we'll be on? I'm talking about Florence. I'm talking about the PD, maybe not the Grand Strand, but yeah. the PD. Well, your traditional dirty side of the storm is the northeast quadrant. Uh, so what we mean about that is if you look at the center of the storm, you look to the northeast, that is where the winds and also the storm speed come in to bring even stronger winds on that northeast side. Now, all kind of, or all hurricanes are completely different. We can't really compare. Um, and I will tell you this, this storm has had a history of having almost a dirty side anywhere along that northern edge. So I would just go ahead and consider if you are north of that circulation, you're going to be picking up on the potential for high-end tropical storm wind gusts or even hurricane-force wind gusts as we go into the late morning and into the early afternoon. We told people this morning when we were ending our show, we said you have about until 10 a.m. If you need to be out, you have until 10 o'clock before things go downhill really quickly. Um, so people listening right now, if you need to go out and make a quick run, it's still going to be windy. The rain's still going to be coming down sideways at times. But this will go downhill quickly, somewhere around 10, uh, I think at the latest 11, and then this moves through and we're done with it. Uh, rain could be as done as 5, 6 o'clock tonight. Um, but to answer your question, I would say anywhere on that northern eye looks to be packing a punch. We actually just got some uh, reports coming in just minutes ago, 74-mile-per-hour gust uh, now observed just over the ocean, just south of Adesto Beach. Uh, Fripp Island just picked up 60 mile per hour gusts. Folly Beach just picked up 66. And that's not even the eye. So we just want people to be prepared as this thing continues to move to the north. Okay, my listeners will understand this perfectly. Anybody in Florence or the PD that ever made enough money to think there's somebody, the first thing they do is buy a beach house. So there are a lot of people that live here that have a second home there. High tides at about, what, 1130-ish? Somewhere thereabout, yeah. is storm surge going to be a big deal? So that's that's what we're kind of timing out right now. And if this has made a turn to the north, it's going to be a close call. It's going to be wondering where we line up with that wind. Right now, all the wind is out of the north. We're looking at some of our beach cams, and it looks just like a rainy beach day. We know the surf is rough, but it's because the northerly wind here at the beach is keeping all of that surf and all of the higher tides out. However, as this thing starts to move up, we'll begin to see those winds shift out of the south. And keep in mind, these winds aren't shifting out of the south at 20 miles per hour. They're shifting out of the south at 50 to 60 to 70 miles per hour. And that's where we're going to see some issues. Right now, models like the idea of that shift being somewhere from 1130 to 1230. And it's unfortunate. We can't make this up. It's literally going to be an hour window here of if we can hold this off and let the tides kind of stay back there, if we can make it to even 1231, the storm surge and coastal flooding is going to be a lot less lower 
than what it could be if this thing were to hit at high tide, say at 1130, and we get the wind shift. So as long as we can keep these winds out of the north, northeast, we'll be okay, but it's going to be a close call, that's for sure. That is about as detailed a guesstimate as I've ever heard anybody try to give, and I want to thank you for that. So what are the potential highest winds we'll experience in Florence, Sumter, you know, in, in what I call the Midlands, or excuse me, the, um, the Eastern Midlands and PD region of South Carolina? Let's go ahead and say we're forecasting right now, if you're not in that I-55, on average, 55-mile-per-hour wind gust. That I, though, even on its stronger side, even if it is a tropical storm, will easily push 65 to 70. Um, so I'm going to say for your area, Florence, PD, the region, 55 on average. But wherever this comes on shore, keep an eye on areas north of it. So if this comes on shore, you know, in downtown Georgetown, I'm looking toward Marion. I'm looking toward the eastern portion of Florence where we could look at wind gusts of, you know, 65 to 70 miles per hour isolated. I still think the biggest threat is going to be on the beach. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but even the bank side of the storm has paid a big price when it comes to wind. Uh, even in Florida, for example, and it continues to happen here, uh, they had wind gusts of 85 miles per hour on the backside under sunny skies. And this backside still looks just as bad as, you know, anything on the front, too. So uh, just because the rain ends doesn't mean we'll be done with this this evening. That's for sure. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate that. Uh, you guys have been very, very um, gracious to us this week, and we do um, owe you a debt of gratitude. Thank you very much. Of course. And like we said, everyone just stay safe. We'll be done with this. The weekend looks so much better. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that very much. Of course. Thank you. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937 is our number. Hurricane Friday. Can we call it that? Yeah. Hurricane Friday. So Rev comes sure. in this morning and says, nothing to see here. 40, I mean, 35 mile That's an hour winds. That's not what I said. And Andrew Dockery just said 60 mile an hour winds. Am I right? I, did, did you say? I did not walk in and say nothing to see here. I said it looks like the, the track of the storm has changed a little bit, which may be good for the, our area, no, the inland areas. I, I said. Maybe better. It began with me saying, Ray, have you worried about this thing? And you said, no, not, not at all. Not at all. No, not thing, as much. I mean, we're looking at the clean side of the storm. That's what it looked okay. like. That's what it looked like, but it looks a little bit differently. I think we're going to be okay, but here's the deal. When the wind blows 50 miles an hour, there's about a 50% chance we're going to lose electricity. I mean, you agree with True. that? I mean, that, that's True. kind of the number when people begin having significant power outages. The one advantage we've got this time is we don't have the, the, the ground so saturated. I mean, it hadn't rained for two days before we get some of this um, some of this wind event. It is right. what it is. There's nothing you can do about it, nothing I can do about it, no, nothing Senator Rickenbach can do about it, nothing Representative um, Jordan can do about it. Maybe maybe Representative Lowe's out there somewhere um, taking care of this storm for us, but I seriously doubt it, unless it's in a dove field somewhere. He's, or, he's, he's look, he might be trying to fish in the middle of it. <laughs> he's, um, yeah, he found a, a place to go fish in a land far, far away, so he wouldn't have to put up with the storm here. But, uh, but I'm sure he's thinking politics, and I'm sure he's thinking about us. Okay, I've got an easy subject I want to talk about, and then I've got a hard one. You guys want the hard one or the easy one first? I say easy. Okay, the easy. Start <laughs> <laughs> earlier. I might have an emergency that requires me to leave Mike here with y'all. Well, I'm, I'm his driver, so yeah, we're gonna have to go. We'll have to go. He goes. He's learning quick. Yeah. He's learning quick. Got to um bob and weave and get out of these things. So uh, Mike sends me a um an email during the week about Governor McMaster um making proposals to the General Assembly about public safety. As part of that, 
Um, I'll, I'll hit the bullet points real quick. Close the revolving door for violent criminals. No bond for repeat violent offenders, career criminals. Um, keep illegal guns away from criminals and juveniles. He's got three uh, points of emphasis here. And then he's got one we talk a lot about on this show that we've had calls and discussions about, and it is the um, magistrate judges. Raise the qualification bar, make the process transparent and accountable as one of the uh, points of emphasis. He says magistrate judges must be required to be licensed attorneys in good standing with the bar, certified to practice law in a courtroom, and should be screened by uh, publicly by the state senate prior to confirmation. Um, we want something done. You guys are trying to get something done, but is Henry offering an unreasonable and unrealistic proposal? Representative Jordan, I'll start with you. So first off, let me go back and pre and let me qualify this and say uh, I'm very happy that the governor has recognized the need to take this issue on. This is a need that obviously we are dealing with here in Florence that we've seen across the PD, and now we're, we're seeing that the governor's recognized that it's going on all across the state and the country for that matter. Um, and you can argue about how we got here. COVID had a lot to do with it, with people being let out that probably shouldn't have been let out at the time. But we are where we are, and we, we it's it's absolutely shine the light on that there are issues we have to deal with so i give the governor absolute credit for that and i also say i agree with him on 95 percent of the reforms that he's putting out there um you just ran through a list of them uh and and he's he's spot on with with a great deal of it um as a, a lawyer I, I respectfully disagree with the idea that um, a magistrate needs to have needs to be a lawyer um, I've, I don't go to magistrate court a, a ton of the time, but I have been more than my share in my 15 or so years practicing law um, in, in areas. If, if we were a, a Columbia, Charleston, or Greenville, you'd probably have a better argument because they deal with a higher volume of cases. Perhaps sometimes these are more complex cases, but, but probably not even that argument is really a great one. Um, but Florence, and then really I'm talking about more rural areas than us, uh, this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Number one, there aren't that many lawyers, despite what you hear. On, you know, when when people start uh, talking about rounding rounding us all up and killing us, there aren't that many of us in the rural areas. Um, so th there's a, a practical problem in just finding someone to do the job. Secondly, um, it, it becomes really counter to the underlying design of the magistrate process to make person to make a person be required to have a law degree to be a magistrate. You know, look back at some of the folks that you look back in the history, if you've dealt or knew some magistrates, the great ones were oftentimes not lawyers. They were just folks that were seen as good and humble and um, folks that uh, possessed a certain amount of humility and, and they were trustworthy and they were put in that position because of those qualities. And they were capable of, of basically, you, know, you don't have the law degree to find justice a lot of times. You don't have to have a law degree to say this is right and this is wrong. Um, now, having said that, I, I do 100% agree that we need to revamp the process. The qualifications need to be re revisited. I think Mike's talked about that. I've heard him call in and talk about that. He's, I know he's dealt that up with some of his Senate colleagues. There absolutely needs to be more transparency. There absolutely needs to be more of that qualification process. So I totally agree with um, the governor engaging in this. I just don't think – I think that's a bridge too far. Mike? You know, Jay brought up some excellent points. The, the feasibility, Ken, is, I think, going to be the, the first major hurdle. There are 10 magistrates in Florence County. Do you know how many have law degrees? One. So when 90% of our magistrates do not have law degrees, 
what's the feasibility of finding enough magistrates to make up 353 across the state? I've talked to several other my Senate colleagues. Most counties run anywhere from 80 to 90 percent, some 100 percent non-attorneys. So I think that the feasibility is the biggest challenge. You know, And secondly, I'm not for increased government spending. We don't have to spend every dollar we have and finding attorneys who will step away from their law practices to make what a magistrate makes is going to be a lot like pushing a rope. Whereas my grandpa used to say, trying to get toothpaste back in the tube. It's just, it's not going to be practical. There were two attorneys who have reached out to me. They've, they've heard me call in. They've heard me say that you know, we need more rigor in magistrates that I objected to every one of the Florence County magistrates reappointment because I, I kind of a, my own form of protest. We need more rigor. We should have a stronger process to find conservative judges. So they reached out and they wanted to talk about it. I sent them the pay scale. Both of them quickly came back and said, oh, that's what a magistrate makes. I can make that in a half a dozen cases. So are we going to double triple the pay of magistrates to attract attorneys and are there enough attorneys to even do it? So I think I, I like where he's going with it in the revolving door, closing that a lot of good points there, but the feasibility has to be there. Okay. Let's stay there for a second. Included is state senators, which include you, Mike should be required to cast a public recorded vote on each magistrate's confirmation. So, so, I mean, I, I look at the Senate in this position or situation as a board of trustees. I got to go find the CEO of the business that I'm on the, a member of the trustee. I'm a, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm on the board of trustees at Clemson and I got to go find the next president. You got to find how many, um, next presidents, what should be the rigor? I mean, we talk a lot in generalities about the rigor and the, and what sort of person we need. Uh, Jay was talking about, you know, some of the best matters just weren't lawyers, but they were competent, diligent, honorable, decent men. How do we, that, th- those are fairly abstract definitions. You know, what does honorable mean? What does decent mean? Um, how do we go out and find the competency we need, the honor we need, the dignity we need, um, the toughness at times that we need to make those consequential decisions? Because it's not like, okay, on a scale of one to 10, I'll give this guy a nine or I'll give this guy a seven. It is a very squishy argument to make yeah and it's very subjective you know dance help answer that question i went to the people that i thought should have the first say which is the people so i've reached out to several people who have gone through magistrate court that are preparing to like what are you looking for in a magistrate and fortunately the first answer wasn't that they always agree with me the first answer ken that they listen And I was surprised that it would be something so simple, but something so rich that they will listen to my side of the story. I don't want them to make judgment for or against me until they listen. So listening would be first and foremost. The second is that they're unbiased. I know in a county like Florence, this is what people say, that magistrate has a pretty darn good chance of either knowing one of the two people in front of them or definitely one of our family members or friends. But I'm asking that they would be unbiased and that they would listen with unbiased truly be blind in terms of the decision-making not being affected by how they feel. So listening, being unbiased, having the ability to set aside their own personal beliefs and rule based upon the court of law and what is in front of them in terms of the, the dictate, not how they feel about it. So what the people want isn't unreasonable. I would like to add like that I think we also need to, to truly consider looking at the magistrates in terms of how they conduct themselves. Social media 
has become a death knell to some people. They will put every thought they have. My, I remember mom used to say, just because you think it, you don't need to say it. And the same can be applied to social media. Before I'll go forward with any magistrates, I go to their social media pages, their Facebook, their Instagram. Because don't tell me you're going to be unbiased when you rant and rave hour after hour about this side or about that side. It's going to affect your objectivity in the minds of the people who go before you. So there's a list that the city has put out when they look for municipal judges. I've fortunately got that list from the mayor and from the city manager. I'm looking at that and I've had a meeting in last year, two weeks ago with every one of our 10 magistrates to say, tell me what you think makes a good magistrate. Some of the answers were, were robust things like the willingness to learn. I'm not an attorney, but I sure can read and I need to read the laws and not just try to pull it out of the thin air when somebody's before me. Each one of the magistrates had qualifications in their mind that they thought made them strong, but I think we need to know what the people want. Continue, I'm sorry. I, I would just add to that, um, that, there's a lot of good points in there, but I'd say there's there's three things in my mind that we have to, three bridges I think we have to cross. Number one is um, the qualifications. You know, it's not just an open-ended, um, you know, ad- admission, so to speak, depending on um, a political process or who you're friends with kind of thing. I'm not saying it's that everywhere, but it's, it's that too many places. Um, and I don't think it needs to be, as I said, I don't think you need to have a law degree to do it. I don't think you probably even have to have a college degree, depending on the circumstances, but there ought to be a certain amount of qualifications. You know, I was talking to the sheriff the other day and he said, well, maybe if you had a 10 to 15 years of law enforcement experience, that certainly in my mind would make you pretty qualified to be considered for a magistrate. So, you know, revamping the qualifications and, and, and maybe having a, a, a broad angle to it, but having a list of qualifications, um, Secondly, would be the screening process. Where there is not one now, there needs to be one. From everything to, if you want to be a magistrate, just like if you want to be a judge in South Carolina, we need to look at some of your financial. You need to disclose your financial situation, which you don't want to have a situation, someone who can't manage a checkbook, and that makes them susceptible to someone slipping them um, an envelope with with some cash to making a decision their way. I'm not giving a specific example of that. I don't have sure. one. I'm just saying that's a danger. There needs to be more of a screening process, and that's that's twofold. That's um, that's for things that need to be perhaps um, not under seal, but more confidential in nature, such as the financial stuff. That I don't think you have to expose your entire background, but there ought to be a, a, a as Mike was saying a um, a people process to that. You ought to have a citizens committee, just like we do for circuit and family court judges, that you go before the public and answer questions from them as well. So there's there's that. And then the third thing I think we could really do, and I think the governor's on the right track with this, the entire magistrate system, we need to give them a little more direction. Remembering these aren't necessarily lawyers or, or people that have been trained in this. A lot of times they're coming from a totally different line of work and um, we need to give them more direction. I'm working on a uniform bond bill right now because of some of the things we've dealt with here in Florence. And, and it would basically give very clear direction as the governor is saying that, you know, if you have a violent felony on your record, if you're caught with a certain amount of drugs or, or a firearm, things like that, you're not entitled to a bond. So we need to give them more direction in that respect as well. Do we have a call? Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, South Carolina ranks year after year. I mean, going back as far as stats go in the top five for violent crime uh, and property crimes um, in this country. Um, so the idea that crime is bad in South Carolina is not a, a anything new, um, nor is it Biden's fault or Trump's fault. Um, now, when elections are mentioned for judges, members of the General Assembly scoff at the idea, yet 39 states use some form of elections for selecting 
or keeping judges. But uh, not to mention our two neighbors are middle of the road when it comes to crime, um, both violent and property. They, they rank somewhere between 23 and 27. So they're fairly average when it comes to this country. And both of them elect judges. Um, we used to elect judge, uh, excuse me, we used to elect magistrates in this state. Um, I think we've got a problem on the Supreme Court uh, with Justice Hearn, who did not recuse herself um, from a case where she's a member of the church, a church, and that church body was suing another church body, and she didn't recuse herself. So clearly we have bias on the Supreme Court, um, and she's a liberal justice. Hopefully we'll She's, I think she's coming off soon. Hopefully we can replace her with somebody um, that fits South Carolina values a little bit better. Um, but I, I'm just at a loss for why we cannot talk about electing judges when it's clearly the norm in the rest of the country. Um, but when we discuss it here, um, the citizenry are not capable of selecting good enough judges. Thank you. Mike, you want to address that? I mean, that, that's not so much a question as a commentary. Yeah, Jim, I appreciate that. And if I understand correctly, South Carolina and Virginia are the only two states of the 50 that select the judges the way we do. Um, I don't know of a perfect way to do it, but I would question whether there should be a better way to do it. And, you know, the old adage that numbers don't lie. If we continuously rank where we do in terms of violent crime, virtually both sides of the aisle can acknowledge that there is a revolving door process and we need to revamp that. Should we look at being not one of the two that do it this way, do it a different way if it can work better? And I'm completely open to that. I'm on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I think that sounds like it make, makes sense to take that up. Jay? First off, I, I think it's always appropriate to uh, I think we should never close the door and say we've done it this way and we're always going to do it this way. That's a, that's a mistake. Just like we're talking about the need to revamp the magistrate process right now and we all seem to be on board that it's 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 time to, to delve into that. I, I'm not saying that the way we elect judges in South Carolina is a perfect way. Never said that. I've always said uh, this is, in my opinion, um, perhaps the better of all the bad ways. Uh, and, and that's kind of what Mike just said. But uh, it's never a good idea to close the door and say, we're, this is how we're going to do it. It's how we've always done it. I think we should always be looking at how we can improve. We should look at others. I absolutely think we should look at other states and see how they do it and see some places that are effective. I'm not a big believer in saying, well, so many states do it this way, so that must be right, because there are a lot of states in the union that get it wrong, and just because a high number of them are doing it a certain way, I, I'm not. that doesn't really pull me to gravitate me towards a direction. Um, but I do think it's something we should look at. We should consider. Um, I, I have been, I don't say, I wouldn't say I've been one of the ones that scoffed at it, but I have said, be careful what you wish for. You know, um, every time we have an election, um, you hear, I'm not a politician and I'm not so sure turning judges into politicians is the right way. If you, if you do look at all the polling, what's wrong with, with, you know, politics is the politicians. And I'm not sure, so, so sure putting judges out on main street asking for um for for donations to their campaigns and then you have lawyers giving that and then the, the next thing you know we're going to hear about how so and so lawyers getting favoritism because um 
you know, they gave to the campaign and the other lawyer didn't. I mean, it, it, again, there's no perfect way. We You're should, talking about some of the big law firms like Nixon Pruitt, Nelson Mullins, some of these companies that have a lot at stake. They, they would make investment in the judicial system. That, but it, it'd be I think it would be a possibility everywhere you go. Sure. Um, in, in every layer, layer of the judicial process. That, that's interesting. And I mean, at least we're having a conversation. I mean, Mike doesn't say he has the answer. Jay doesn't say it. Mike, I mean, um, Jim has a very uh, strong belief in the way we should do it. And I, I just think the... Um, the best part of what we do here on Friday morning is allow everybody to express themselves and bounce things off one another. I want to stay here one second, take a break, but um, how involved, because you said something a second ago, Jay, how involved should law enforcement be in the selecting of magistrates? In other words, the Senate makes the choice. I get that. Uh, we're going to take a break, Mike, but I'm going to come back and chew on that for just a second, and then I'm going to throw these guys a curveball that they know absolutely nothing Uh-oh. about. Back in a minute. So let's stay with the Madras just for one second. I want to get some clarity here. Do, do, do the two of you believe that law enforcement should have a disproportional input? Should they have more say or, or more, uh, maybe not say, more, should there be more conversations with law enforcement? Because it does become a part of how they, in other words, when a law enforcement agent goes out and locks somebody up for a, I mean, let's use a recent example, Mike, 500 and some odd um, grams of heroin. And the person is booked that morning, let out that afternoon. That frustrates. I mean, that 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 creates a problem with morale within law enforcement. Should law enforcement be more actively engaged when we hire a new magistrate? Yeah, but I don't think so because I think what that does is that that disproportionately shifts the bias factor, the, the fact that citizens want unbiased. They don't want law enforcement to be to putting their finger on the scale any more than they want in the blank the aclu putting their finger on the scale i'm looking for a very uber liberal there they want people to listen to the facts of the case from both sides and make the best determination based upon the laws at hand using judgment using discretion but i think what people are looking for is fair and i think what if you ask the majority of the people as i've been doing it's they want fair they want reasonable deliberate intentional fair decisions not necessarily I'm going to lean heavily toward one side or the other. Now, I think the the factor that people need to remember is senators nominate magistrates. It's the governor who appoints them. So I think what we see in in Governor McMaster's uh, proposals that he put out this past week that I sent you, I think you're going to see Governor McMaster pushing back more. It seems that way. Yeah, when I went ahead and I objected to our magistrates, and we explained why, that it has nothing to do with whether they're good or bad. I just, they think we need more of a process. Um, I did get a call. And they're like, you know, are you objecting to every one of your magistrates? That's, that's, that's kind of unheard of. And I explained why to them, but the governor's office took note of that. And I think they're paying more attention because ultimately push comes to shove. The appointment of 353 magistrates are all done by Governor Henry McMaster, Governor fill in the blank. All we do is nominate, but the governor appoints. But, but Jay, you understand the frustration with the repeat offenders Absolutely. and law enforcement doing their job. But mine makes a very interesting point. Nobody, I mean, it needs to be equal application of justice. No, I think the, I don't know if I understood the question exactly right, but I think you said, should they have a disproportionate input into the process? And the answer is no. They should have a proportionate input into the process, as should um, everyday folks, as should, you know, all of us who deal with the, the, the system. I think the biggest frustration right now is that it's just not very transparent. Um, you don't know who you know, there's no mechanism for which anyone, law enforcement or the general public, to say, well, wait a minute, I hear this this guy's going to be a magistrate, this lady's going to be a magistrate, I want the opportunity to eyeball him and ask him some questions and 
you know, just like we do for the other judges and state judges in South Carolina. So um, I think it would be a mistake to ignore the general public, but but it would be a, a especially a mistake to ignore the wisdom of law enforcement if they take time to give input into the process because they do deal with the system itself on a regular basis and can tell you some of the good points and some of the bad points. Of it. Let's shift gears and go to this subject. This is interesting to me, and we talked, we touched on it this morning uh, earlier in the show. There's a gubernatorial race going on in South Carolina. Uh, the trend lines in South Carolina naturally favor the Republican. I think they even more favor the Republican today because of some of the macroeconomics. I'm talking about inflation and the economy. And uh, I mean, I looked the other day, I think it might have been Wednesday or Tuesday. The Republicans nationally are up 17 on inflation, up 19 on the economy. I mean, there, there's some there's some tailwinds that are going to help Republicans. And, you know, South Carolina's historically been a 55, 45-ish state in a, in a statewide race. But there's an interesting dynamic in this gubernatorial race, and I want to touch on it, get you tired. I mean, you guys are running for office at all times, pretty much. I mean, you're always running for the next election cycle. But but I want to, I want to touch on something that Joe Cunningham is doing with his campaign as he, you know, tries to unseat Henry McMaster. And I'm a, I'm a Henry supporter. I think both of you are Henry supporters. He's our guy. He's the Republican nominee. But, but Cunningham has an ad out that talks about marijuana legalization, um, sports betting being coming legal, term limits and age limits. I'm a fairly libertarian Republican. I mean, I would be a Trumpster by today's definition. I don't support the legalization of marijuana. I do support sports betting. I am for term limits, and I am for age limits. So there's a Democrat running against our Republican nominee who's running an ad, not, not about abortion, not about the expansion of government, not, not about the welfare state. Th- those are easy targets for us right of center. You know, when we got to watch those Democrats on those issues. Is that good strategy? And is that a strategy that is trying to reach out to not the Republican voter, but rather the Trump voter who we still don't have a good idea? And then, Jay, you and I talked about, we still don't know exactly who that group of people are or what lights their candle. Mike, I mean, I'm not saying is, is Joe Cunningham running a good race or not, but obviously he's reaching out to a universe of people who have historically voted Republican because he believes that's his only chance to potentially narrow the gap or pull off the upset. Yeah, it's interesting. And I saw that same commercial last night, as a matter of fact. I think it's a mixed bag with, with this, the success of him reaching out uh, to that particular voter. Um, the legalization of marijuana if you look at the states that have done it, by and large, it is a horrible idea. It erodes the communities. It increases unemployment. It increases incarceration. I mean, there's so many reasons because it can. It doesn't just flip one switch. There's a lot of levers that get pulled. So I think that's going to hurt him. I think term limits will help him. Um, I heard during the campaign, term limits, term limits. Now, people need to be mindful of the fact that if you know with term limits, we need to then be change the process because right now committee assignments are based upon seniority. Um, but I co-sponsored term limit legislation with Senator West Clymer because our constituents want term limits. So I think it's going to be a mixed bag in terms of how it resonates. Jay, I mean, you see what he's trying to do. I mean, he's trying to find a message. He knows he gets beat as a Democrat in South Carolina to run against a Republican in traditional ways. He's trying to engage an audience that he believes he has a better chance of swaying to his side than the rank-and-file Republican voter. So I might just turn this around for a second and, and sort of ask you this question because I've never run for a statewide office, and you have. But I, and so I'd ask it in this way. 
um, you're pretty knowledgeable about those statewide elections. And are you aware, or I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're aware, uh, you don't see many statewide candidates that just go out on a limb. Everything they do, to my knowledge, is they polled pretty well. No, no question. No I doubt mean, about it. They've spent a significant amount of money investing in very competent pollsters and to identify not just whether people like them or not, but to inquire in depth into these issues. Is that not right? What issue are they paying closest attention to? So if I had to guess, and this would be for whatever commercial I see coming down the, the path for either campaign, these are issues that these campaigns have, have identified as what the people at least a certain percentage of them want to hear um you know and at this point in the election it would be my guess you know we're how many days out we're basically a month and mm-hmm. a week away at this point um a significant number of people have made up their minds you know so many um percentage of people are going to be for henry unless he robs a bank between here and there and so many people are going to be against henry um no matter what he does if, even if he unveils some great you know cure for cancer they're going to be against him on the democrat side so they're targeting as i would think as we just discussed folks that they can swing in on these particular issues to try and pull over their camp to try and win a race does it work see see i'll make a prediction i mean i'll go on the record you guys got to be careful i don't this state is a 55 45 state that race will probably be 53 47 I think he shrinks the margin. I mean, I think he's more competitive than people believe he is. I think abortion helps him a little bit on the edges, but there's a reason he's not talking abortion. As Jay said, there's a reason he's talking sports betting. There's a reason he's talking marijuana. There's a reason he's talking term limits and age limits is obviously a jab at Henry. But but I, you're exactly right, Jay. I mean, he, he, has, he has found a place where he believes gives him the best chance to gain support of. Now, here's the anomaly. Here's the oddity of the race. We don't know, we don't have a long history on the Trump voter. I mean, we know what floats the boat of the rank-and-file Republican voter. I mean, I, I ran for office. I know what to say in Greenville. I know what to say in Myrtle Beach. I know what to say in Charleston. The polling makes it pretty clear. I know when I get to the Midlands, what what kind of there. there. So w- when you're somebody like Cunningham and you have such a uphill climb, you, you've got to swing for the fence. You've well, got to be riskier as a candidate, and I think he's making – I mean, I'll tell you what I saw with the ad, Mike and Jay. I saw a real smart advertisement in a political ad or a political campaign that gives the guy – I mean, I, I think that's the best money spent of a statewide office seeker that I've seen spent in a long, long time. Well, I, he's absolutely – he's trying to thread a needle is what he's But he knows he has to thread correct. that needle. He, he, he's identified where he is in the race at this point with – 40 days to go, essentially, and he's he's trying to thread that needle. I don't think he'll be able to do it for a couple reasons that we've essentially already identified. Number one, he couldn't have been dealt much worse of a hand for the national picture, you know, gas prices, the economy, the president. Um, I mean, every single he's day. He's Biden's guy, whether he wants it, to be right. or not. He's Biden's that, guy. That's exactly right. He, he is a, a foot soldier for the president of the United States who, unfortunately for him and for us, um, has struggled mightily with the job of being president of the United States. So for all those reasons, he's he's got the deck stacked against him, against him on that side. And the other side is Henry's done a pretty good job. Point to me where you can say the governor has has not done something. You, you know, we've succeeded economically. Um, I, I can tell you this. I don't think anyone in, in the state in, or in the country, including myself, had the perfect plan or opinion or handled perfectly COVID. But Henry did a lot better than a lot of the governor did a lot. You know, he likes to say we didn't close. 
and we, we, we sort of came close to it for a little we while. We closed for a little while. <laughs> but, but we were nowhere near. Um, we were much more akin to the Floridas of the world than the Michigans of the world and going down that, that list. So for those two reasons, the hand he's dealt with the, the bigger bigger political picture um, is too uphill, and the other side is Henry's just done a good job. Mike, I want to go back to something you touched on because this is so interesting to me. And this is, um, I mean, we're, we're talking about things that these guys had no idea we were going to talk about, and I think you guys get rewarded for that. I mean, I know it makes you nervous, but I still believe that people have such respect for politicians who are willing to, on the fly, tell you things they believe. I, I just think right now in America, people want to hear authenticity. I, I, I believe that with every fiber of my being easy for me to say i'm not running for office don't hold office <laughs> having said that mike you, you said something a second ago and i'll agree with you i would vote for sports betting against the legalization of marijuana and i'm about as libertarian as they come i just have read the data as you have but what do you do when the data says one thing but public opinion says something else i mean you've made it a part of your campaign to listen to your constituency to trust their judgment to at least give them some valid input into what your job requires of you so what does someone like you do when you have a, such a belief in the data, and the data says clearly this, but the public says, huh, I'd kind of rather try that. Yeah. yeah it's, that's bouncing a football. Yeah, it is. And that's a challenge when you're a, a people pleaser. And anybody who knows me, I like to please people. I like to make peace. Uh, the medical marijuana was a great example. I got email after email from a person who wanted to espouse the benefits that they saw of legalizing recreational marijuana. And their point was, it's already being used. Let the let the states tax it. Look what we could do with education. Look how we could help people. There's going to be no more of an increase in the use of recreational marijuana if we do that. And I had to respectfully disagree. And, and I do think that people want to be listened to and they want that engagement. Because when you respectfully disagree, and, I, and, I, and over and over I'd say, look, I appreciate your opinion. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm not saying that I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm going to disagree because I've seen not just the anecdotal facts, but I've seen real life examples of what it does to the community. So if the if you as a citizen and a constituent, and I love it when they say I'm your constituent I, and, and I vote and I appreciate that, but I still have to do what's right. And I think, you know, I don't want to ever over spiritualize this seat, but this seat isn't mine. This seat isn't Jay's and he knows that too. That's why I love serving with him. This seat a belongs to God. He puts people in place and he removes others. The Bible even says it, and it belongs to the people. They make the vote. So if we make the decisions that are contrary to what they think is best for the citizenry, then remove us. And dear help us, God, if we make the decisions that are anti to his word and voting biblical principles, then remove us. But as long as we're in these seats, we got to do what's right. Not for man, not for party, not for lobbyists, but for the voters and for the Lord who puts us here. Let's take a break. I want to come back. I, I got a surprise, a fun surprise for these guys in about five minutes. This wasn't fun. <laughs> Enough of the weed and gambling and who's too old to hold office. Let's get to some serious business. I've got a list of six games here. I'm going to turn you guys into sports prognosticators. You ready? I'll give Jay Jordan the first game. It's like get, game day. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. He's Jimmy the Greek. Yeah. We'll see if he is or not. Better than Lee Corso. We, we will see or not. <laughs> So here's the first game. You ready? Alabama at Arkansas. Representative Jordan says. You going to give me the line? Or yeah, just, just straight straight up. Straight Alabama. Okay. Bama. Bama. That's a, they're going out on a limb. Um, Kentucky <laughs> at Ole Miss. Kentucky. Kentucky. Well, cats. Okay. Both of you guys are in agreement. Oklahoma State at Baylor. Hmm. Mm. 
Big 12. Mm. Both teams nice. are in the top 20. Yeah, I'm going to go home team Baylor. Okay. Mike? I was always a Barry Sanders fan. Give me them Cowboys. Okay, so you disagree hey, on Baylor and Oklahoma yeah. State. Wake Forest and Florida State at Tallahassee. Why do I have to go first well, every time? Go first, Mike. He's right. You know, Demon Deacons, I think they're feeling a little bit of moxie. Give me the Wake Forest. Okay. Uh, at home in Tallahassee, let's go Florida State. Okay, you disagree on that one. Texas A&M at Mississippi State. A&M, big. Dig em. North Carolina State at Clemson. This is the last game. I want a little bit of commentary mm. on the North. Well, you're both the Gamecocks. I want a little bit of commentary on the NC State-Clemson game. Uh, home game at Clemson. Weather's not going to be great. That probably, I think that favors Clemson in their defense. Um, as much as I want to pick the Wolfpack, I'm going to go tight. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Like, okay, am I allowed to like support and send a check to the Wolfpack? How does that work? And I think Jay's point is well made. I mean, Dabo is a smart man, but everybody can have a down day. I think it got his, got their attention getting pushed to the limit like that. I bet he worked them like a rented mule this week in practice. They're going to come out ready to play. So we agree on Alabama. We agree on Kentucky. We disagree on Oklahoma State, Baylor. We disagree on Wake Forest, Florida State. We agree on Texas A&M, Mississippi State. And we agree on NC State, Clemson. Let's go back. I want to change one. I think Lane Kiffin gets a statement win mm. at Ole Miss. Mm. Rebels. Okay. <laughs> Ole Miss at home against top uh, top 10 ranked Kentucky. Ole Miss number 12 or 13 in the country should be a pretty good. I try to find games that were competitive so we wouldn't have to worry about who gets the points and who doesn't. And you want to commentary real quick on that? That's yeah. because that'll make Kentucky fired up to play the Gamecocks, which is the worst case scenario for the Gamecocks. <laughs> okay. Know, uh, but, but here's chicken, my final chicken curse. Here's my you know, plea and request. And you guys can think on it over the weekend while we're trying to restore power and all these fun things. Um, I think we need legislation that disallows our flagship university from rescheduling a football game unless the wind's blowing in excess of 300 miles an hour. I thought you were a libertarian. Well, I, I don't like a lot of laws. Unless you're but, dealing with this Gamecock yeah. football. But, but I, want, I want a law on the books or I'm going to scold both of you in a way that you'll never come back Why in the studio again. Why don't we just make again. you the czar of Gamecock football? Can you do that? Uh, yeah. Is that a role? Find us some new mattresses and make me be the czar and, uh, and everything, will be, everything will be just hunky-dory. Thanks to both of you. Enjoy it. Uh, thanks to See both you. of you for Stay being safe here. Out there. Yeah, well, we, we need a piece of legislation that forbids the University of South Carolina from canceling or rescheduling its football game. It's going to be sunny and clear tomorrow. Back in a minute.
843-661-0937. I can kill it on karaoke with that one. I can't, I mean, that can song you? is near and dear to my heart because I can really kill it in karaoke. karaoke. I don't have a lot of range in my voice, but there are some places I just nail it as if I were Sinatra. And that's one of those few that, I mean, you got to hear it one day, Rev. I know. Ma- ma- here's, maybe. here's something I've never heard yeah, before. Well, this I mean, is interesting. And I doubt you ever will. <laughs> I, I doubt you ever will. Hey, we call this decompression hour, last hour of the week. Uh, be careful when you say decompression around a pressure system, because all we talked about this week is high pressure system, right. low pressure system. And-, and, and I want to thank WMBF meteorologists, um, Andrew Dockery and Jamie Arnold for their um, willingness to come on our show every day and update us on uh, what is and what ain't and what might happen and what might not happen. It looks to me like, from what I'm gathering and what they said, by noon today we'll see some pretty serious deteriorating of the weather and uh, a rough, what, six or seven hours, somewhere thereabout. I would imagine there'll be scattered and isolated power outages, uh, but the main thing is everybody stay safe. There are multiple deaths in um, western Florida today because people just didn't listen. They didn't heed uh, the warning. And I think, you know, we've convinced ourselves here. I mean, I've t- said it before and I'll say it again. I have two lives as it relates to hurricanes. It's a little bit like AD and BC. <laughs> I've got I've got pre-Hugo and post-Hugo. <laughs> Anytime yeah, I hear too. a hurricane now or a, uh, you know, European model or the American model, I'm like, whoa, what, what is that I heard? Is somebody talking about hurricane? And that is a direct impact or effect of um, going through Hugo. Um, Jason Priester is with us, and Jason is our Clemson expert, allclemson.com. Before we go to Jason, I want to be respectful of his time, but I do want to touch on this because we got an inflation number again this morning, and I'd be derelict in my duty as a political radio show host without touching on this. Fed Vice Chair, uh, there's a lady named Lael Brainerd. She's the Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve. She made a statement this morning that is very profound to me. And I've kept up with the Fed, and I've tried to understand some of the um, easy money and, uh, you know, 0% interest rates and raising rates, quantitative easing, quantitative. It's kind of a lingo in its own, and the Fed is a – I mean, it truly is. The central bankers in the world today are truly as close to masters of the universe as we have. Saban may think he's master of the universe. Dabo may think he's master of the universe. Jerome Powell is, <laughs> is truly the master of all of our universes because he controls so much of our monetary policy. His vice chair said about an hour ago, really about 30 minutes ago, monetary policy will need to be restrictive for some time to have confidence that inflation is moving back to target. For these reasons, we are committed to avoiding pulling back prematurely. That's a big deal. When a vice chair of the Federal Reserve says something, that's about as aggressive as you get. I mean, that's like the offensive lineman getting cussed out. And in football lingo, when a Fed vice chair, we are committed to avoiding pulling back prematurely. That's about as profound as anybody on the record at the Fed will go. And that means that we're going to see, to me, a tremendous decline in economic activity in the valuation of the stock market in the name of attacking inflation and and preserving some sense of sanity in the American economy. So I, I got to get that in, uh, what the vice chair said moments ago, 
um, in response to the most recent inflation report. And that we, probably encourages you. Well, I mean, it, 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 well, I mean, I'm encouraged and discouraged. I don't want anybody to lose their job. Right. I mean, I don't want the economy to go into recession. Nobody wants that. But that's that. an indication they're serious about I, this. I believe right? that the battle against inflation and easy money is more damaging and devastating in the long run than a, than a recession or high unemployment would be in the short. I mean, we've got ourselves in a position, Rev, there are no good choices. I mean, it's the least of the bad choice. And I think the least of the bad choices is to understand the quandary, the conundrum we've got ourselves into and what sort of tools we have to fight it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm in real estate, I don't like it. If I'm in the mutual fund business, I don't like it. If I'm Reggie Armstrong, I don't like it. We've had about a nine or $10 trillion sell-off in uh, corporate equities and, and mutual funds. I still think there's another seven or eight or nine to go if we are indeed going to aggressively control or contain inflation and get the economy back in some sense of monetary reality. So, yeah, I mean, I am encouraged by that, but I'm not encouraged that we're going to increase unemployment and we're going to cause a lot of problems in the housing sector. I'm not, in, I mean, nobody lied. I don't like to see anybody hurt. I mean, I don't want to see anybody have economic pain, well, Of course, but, but I just think the country's gotten itself into a very dangerous and precipitous place. And the, the Fed has to have the courage to do what needs to be done. And to me, this is charting the right course. Um, thank you, Jason, for putting up with me long enough <laughs> to get that off my chest. But um, uh, we've got a football game, and um, that is Saturday afternoon, game day in Clemson, big day in Tiger Town. It looks to me like, Jason, we're going to catch a little bit of a break. Uh, earlier in the week, we were worried about why they're moving the game, the game day be there. But, but the weather has somewhat cooperated. Looks like tomorrow will be good. Um, what do you expect, Jason, out of your Tigers and the NC State Wolfpack? Yeah, if you're in the upstate, the, the weather has might be going to spare you a little bit. Um, I actually drove up here last night to kind of avoid what's coming today. But, yeah, a little football game this weekend up here, and it's a big one. Probably one of the biggest of this season. Um two of the best teams in the AC, two top 10 teams. Um, I think this is the first time NC State's ever played in a as in a top 10 game. It's the first time these two teams have met both inside the top 10. And there's this has kind of become a heated rivalry over the years, especially since Dave Dorn's been in charge up there. Um, no love lost between him and Dabo Sweeney. No day had one of his assistants kind of take a little swipe at Deshaun Watson one year. Dorn seemingly bragged about knocking out Wayne Gallman in a game in 2016. Had him accused Clemson of cheating with a laptop one year. Um, Clemson coaching staff trolling him with a laptop on one of the play cars the next season. So, you know, it, it's it's been an interesting rivalry or series or whatever you want to call it over the last few years. And both these teams ranking inside the top 10 ESPN's game day in town just adds another layer of intrigue. Jason, NC state's got pretty good football players. I mean, I'm not saying they have football players, the caliber of Clemson, but, but from top to bottom, I think they're better than Wake Forest. Is that a fair evaluation? I, I would 100% agree with that. Um, if you go back and look at their recruiting rankings, you know these aren't these aren't a bunch of four and five star guys. So North Carolina State has done a heck of a job developing most of these players. 
Devin Leary's turned into an excellent quarterback. Um, they probably got the best linebacker core in the conference. Um, you know, it, this is they've got very good receivers, a, a, a good offensive line, and to me, the biggest thing is most of these guys have played a lot of football. They've been there for a while. This is a very experienced team. They do all the little things right. They rarely beat themselves. Um, yeah, th- this is a very good football team, and, and it, it is, I would say, better than Wake Forest. What did Clemson show you last week that you like, and what did you see last week that caused you some, some concern? I remember what you said, and I watched the Clemson game getting ready for the Gamecocks tailgating, and, and you're right, there's some issues on the backside of the, of the defense. George, I mean, uh, Wake Forest had some success throwing the vertical ball. Um, and I remember you talking a little bit about that. The backside worried you a little bit. D- does it still worry you that much? And, and what did you see last week out of your Tigers that you do like? Um, I would say the thing that I saw that I liked was for the first time probably since Trevor Lawrence was here, we saw the offense be able to pick the defense up when it was having a bad day. You know, for a long time, that Clemson defense has been very good. It doesn't have many bad days. It had a bad day last last Saturday. Um, let's let's face it. Wake Forest had an excellent game plan, and, and they, they almost they almost pulled it off flawlessly. I would have never expected that game to have almost a hundred points scored in it, but, that, but that's the way it played out. And you know, but it was good to see that offense finally step up and. and play to its potential because it's not done that in the last year and four games. It was pretty bad last year, and I would say that was the main thing that I liked. And and on the other side of that, you know, same thing with the concerns. The back end of that defense is definitely a concern. It's not very deep. Clemson's banged up there. They were missing a couple guys out of that secondary and if you don't have a lot of depth at cornerback, if you get a guy or two injured, you're starting to have to go way down the depth chart. And, you know, Sam Hartman picked on those young, inexperienced guys the other day, and their inexperience showed in a big way. Do you worry at all about the defense being able to adjust? I mean, Venables was a world-class defensive coordinator. Everybody knew that. You've got a new guy. I'm not throwing stones at the new guy. But but is there some concern that as good as Venables was, there's somewhat of a fall off in making sure we adjust as the game progresses? I think that's absolutely a concern. Um, that's that's Brent, Brent Venables left some pretty big shoes to fill, and we are talking about a guy who has never called plays before this season. So it's absolutely a concern. Um, he he didn't he waited till late to adjust in that game the other day. Um, it, it, he kept leaving them corners on the island, and they kept getting beat. He finally did make an adjustment late, pulled the linebackers back, um, started giving them the run a little bit. And it paid off at the end, but he definitely waited a while, you know, to make that adjustment. So I do think that that's the question going forward. How good of a field does he have knowing what adjustments to make, when to make those adjustments? Because when you start talking about when to make them, fine line you're walking there. If you make them too late, it could cost you. And I, it came close to costing Clemson last weekend. Did DJ look better from your perspective, a little more consistent, more comfortable, more, more confident? Absolutely. I think he is night and day different than what we saw a season ago. I think he's gotten better with each passing week. Um, he kind of looked 
guy that everybody thought he was going to be last week. Um, he, he looked poised. He looked in control. He never panicked. He, he, he was making throws with guys hanging off of him. Um, he was even making plays in the running game and, and running physical. DJ's a big guy, you know, 230, 235. And I've always thought he's a little easy to bring down for a guy that size. In the past two weeks, he, he's been running a lot harder, not nearly as easy to bring down. He's never going to be this fleet of foot guy who, who can, who's going to pick you up 100 yards from week to week. He can go out and get you 40 or 50 and pick up some big yards when you need him. He just needs to be a factor in the running game, that threat, make opponents respect, respect it. And I think he's done that the past couple of weeks. Jason, you liked the matchup last week. It surprised you. I, I guess it surprised you when it was as competitive as it was. Um, give us what your take is on uh, what you think will happen tomorrow night in Death Valley. I think this is going to be a slugfest. Um, North Carolina State employs that three-three-five look, you know, on defense, and, and Clemson has had at times struggled a little bit with, with the odd fronts Clemson's offensive line has. Um, so I think that'll be one thing to keep an eye on. I think they'll try and they'll probably take advantage of the freshmen starting on at, at right tackle, but. You know, I think this is – I know Clemson's vastly superior when it comes to raw talent. Clemson's out-recruited everybody in the ACC. But, again, I think North Carolina State's done an excellent job at developing these guys. They're very experienced. So I, I think this is a about as even as a matchup as you're going to find for Clemson in the ACC this season. Um, it, it's kind of turning into a rivalry game, in a sense, over the past few years. And I think you're going to have um, dog fight in Clemson on tomorrow night. Um, I think it's going to be close, and it could come down to it could come down to the final minutes. Um, I think it could be that close. Jason, is NC State going to have any problem getting there? I mean, a lot of this weather is north of you know where you are, and and I looked on the weather radar this morning, and I think Doran early in the week said he's concerned about. I mean, do we know if NC State got there okay, or or will they? Do we think they'll have any problem getting to Clemson? You know, I have not heard anything about that. I just got here last night, but um, I do know he had some concerns about, you know, how they would fly in earlier in the week. Uh, I would imagine they probably left a day early. To me, that that would have been the smart thing to do, get out of there ahead of that mess. But um, I have not heard anything that they've had any problems, so I, I really can't comment on that. Good deal, Jason. Thank you for your time. Stay safe, and um, we'll talk again next week. All right. Appreciate it, Ken. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you very much. Jason Priester of allclemson.com, which is an affiliate, I think, associated in some way, shape, or form with Sports Illustrated. Um, Sports Illustrated has these alliances or associations with college football programs. Clemson is one, and I think they they go by the allclemson.com uh, moniker. And very as, informative. And as a uh, programming note, we carry Clemson football and basketball on community broadcasters radio stations in uh, Florence and Sumter and now, 97.1 and 94.7 in the Florence and Sumter area and 105.3 in the Orangeburg area. And, Air, airtime tomorrow night, 6.30. And Chris Clark will call in at around 9.30, not looking forward to a game that should have been played on Saturday, but rather one that was, <laughs> for some back. stupid reason, played on a Thursday. But you got the W. Yeah. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 10937 is our number. We're waiting on Chris, ah, Chris Clark from Gamecock Central to call in in just a couple of minutes. Well, before he calls in, can I sneak back into a little bit of a political serious issue? Sure, you can. Uh, because we're talking about inflation and the Fed move. And so the the statement you read a little while ago from this morning 
uh, indicates to you, and you think it's a big deal, that uh, they're going to stay on it. Well, I mean, the headline on CNBC is um, is what the Fed vice chair had to say about staying the course. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a big deal because I think there is a belief on Wall Street that they will blink. I mean, if given an opportunity in the next three, if, if their show, if there begins to, well, I mean, I said a credit event. I mean, you know, you can't account for a credit event. Um, if one of these major iconic American companies all of a sudden say we can't pay our debt, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's a better chance they blink if that were to become uh, on the table. But but uh, the futures are down 45. They were up about 27. Uh, somebody said yesterday, I think it was Larry, you know, you can't pay any attention to the futures. Well, you can if that's all you got. You know, and we get here at 6 o'clock in the morning, and all we have is what the futures are saying, and it's um, kind of a um, implied open to what the market will or will not do. But, um, I mean, the S&P is about to close in a in a very miserable week, a very miserable month, a very miserable quarter, but it's, it's kind of the necessary um, elixir for the situation we've gotten our, ourselves into. The Fed, um, they have this, what they call the preferred gauge, and it shows inflation accelerated even more than expected in the month of August. So here we are in September, I'm looking back on the math or the data of um, of August and whatever the inflation measure was, it looks like the Fed missed it by a little bit and inflation was even more rampant than we imagined it was. Uh, let's see, this core inflation rose 4.9% from a year ago in August and 0. 0.0, excuse me, 0.6 on a monthly basis. According to the measure, the Federal Reserve watches closely. Maybe that's the motivator for the announcement. I mean, maybe the Fed said that because of this measurement, we have to even make it more obvious and clear that we are going to um, keep our foot on. It's kind of interesting. Are they keeping their foot on the gas pedal or are they keeping their foot on the brake pedal? Because the gas pedal um, is you know, it's kind of them forging their own direction, right. <laughs> uh, them raising rates. They're dancing and, the rates yeah. and breaking the economy. And, and here's the balancing act of the B-R-A-K-E. Fed. I said it yesterday. Yeah, B-R-A-K-E, not B-R-E-A-K. They've got to be careful not to B-R-E-A-K the economy, but rather break the economy. And by that, and you asked me a second ago, um, do, do I think they're making the right decision? Yeah, but I, I do. I think the Fed is making the absolute right decision in staying the course. But it's going to bring economic hardship. I mean, there's no doubt about it. The economy is going to shrink. People are going to lose their job. Corporations are going to make less money. That There may or may not be a uh, credit event in corporate America. And um, someone asked me, I said, what is a credit event? I mean, a credit event is simply when one of these companies can't pay their debt. And you've got this rev all over the economy. And here's the problem with what zero interest rates will allow. A lot of these big companies bought LIBOR, you know, a, a half point above prime, quarter point above prime. I'm talking about overnight, you know, overnight loans and overnight paper and commercial debt. And I mean, it gets real complicated. I understand it to some degree. I'm certainly not, you know, Jamie Dimon, but I have a grasp of what some of that commercial paper and overnight lending and LIBOR and um, global asset transactions, the Euro index. I mean, I, I understand enough of that to be dangerous, but here's the situation we've gotten ourselves into. Let's say there's a company out there papering over the cracks. They have a marginal widget. They're okay at business, but they've sustained based on what their debt load has been. And their debt load is based on LIBOR. And they've been borrowing money and financing growth or or really not growth in the economy, but hanging on in the economy. And they've done it with what? With interest rates. I mean, borrowing money at one, one and a half, two percent is like borrowing money at nothing. All of a sudden, 
they start borrowing money at 5%, 6%, 6.5% some commercial transactions, and their debt payments go up, you know, $50 million a month. And I use GE as an example because a lot of people know that GE has some fundamental flaws. I mean, GM's an iconic American brand, but they're a shadow of their former selves. There's a big debate on why is GE like they are today and not like they were during the glory days of Jack Welch. Some will say, well, they tried to diversify too much. Some will say, well, they they believed in uh, their kind of um, Sears in an Amazon world. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about GE to know why the company has gotten itself in the position it's gotten itself into. But let's hypothetically say that the Fed commits to keeping the course, staying the course, raising rates, quantitative tightening, and out of that comes a GE that goes to the government or goes to their bank. J, J, let's say J.P. Morgan is the financier of GE. I'm hypothetical here, now, but stick with me. The, the CEO of GE calls Jamie Dimon and says, hey, our debt payments are $60 million more a month. We can't make it. We can't make that payment. That's layman. That's Bear Stearns. I mean, it's not in the financial sector because it's not a financial meltdown we're having. But, but all of a sudden, corporate America seems to be in trouble. Why is corporate America in trouble? Well, this corporation was not real good anyway. And all of a sudden, but they were able to survive on, you know, a suppressed interest rate. That could concern the Fed enough to shift gears and be more lax in their aggressiveness. I don't think there's any way they're quantitative ease. I mean, I just think they've convinced themselves there will be no more quantitative easing. There will be no more purchasing of mortgage-backed securities or government bonds. They may or may not raise rates 50 basis points. A slowdown to the Fed, in my opinion, is raising only 25 basis points. And you asked me earlier this morning, what happens to GE? That's a good question. I don't have any idea. Do we have the stomach for GE to go into bankruptcy? At the end of the day, that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Do we have the the fortitude and, and courage to allow an iconic American company like GE, and I'm picking on GE because they've got some problems. It's just your hypothetical to, example. To, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, but there's going to be a credit event. I mean, there's going to be one or two or three or four or five or six major credit events in the next 30, 60, 90 days. The question is not that, but whether the Fed blinks as a result of that pressure from Wall Street, from the politicos. I mean, where is GE domiciled? I mean, they've got a senator. They've got a congressman. What if that senator sits on the banking committee? I mean, he's going to call Jamie. He's going to call somebody at the Fed and say, stop with this nonsense. I mean, you guys are running people out of business. No, they've allowed people to stay in business for longer than they should have stayed in business and grow their sector of the economy by making marginal widgets at best. Um, speaking of marginal. What a segue. <laughs> Let's go to our good friend, Chris Clark from Gamecock Central. And you're not talking about Chris. You're talking about. No, not Chris. Chris is not marginal at all. But he and I cheer for a team that we could argue has a history <laughs> of, being, a uh, of being marginal. Chris, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for the uh, lesson on uh, interest rates and such while I was waiting. Well, take it for what it's <laughs> worth. But um, it, it's my opinion and my opinion uh, alone. So I want to go to the game, not tomorrow, because we're not having a game tomorrow. Despite it being sunny and clear, we're not having a game tomorrow. We had a game last night. So did the game last night go as you expected? What did you see you liked? And what did you see that you're like, wow, we got to do a much better job of this? In a lot of ways, it played out kind of how I saw it in terms of, to go back to your word, um, sort of margin, different form of the word you use, uh, just score margin. 
you know, I think I picked 56 to 10 for South Carolina. So, you know, I, I baked in there a, a late touchdown for SC State. That ended up being at the beginning of the third quarter, which you didn't really like. Other than that, SC State didn't do much of note offensively, which I think was a positive, but probably expected given the talent gap. I thought South Carolina would be more crisp offensively, but it, it is kind of amazing. I understand. I, I kind of I'd like to meet things in the middle, Ken. I think you know me. Mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly fair to point out some of the things that could be concerning if you continue to carry them into the remainder of the season. You know, the the, the easy stretch, quote unquote, is over. You know, now you're Kentucky and Tennessee and Florida and Clemson, A and M. You got those around the corner. This is where you've got to make some hey, you've got your your three wins you can put in your pocket. So pointing out some of the things that can't persist is totally fair. But having a complete meltdown overreaction to a forty point win on a short week where you kept it pretty simple and you had the ball bounce the wrong way a couple of times, I I can't get there either, right? I mean, South Carolina punted I know they weren't very crisp offensively. The first thing Shane Beamer said when he got up to his press conference is not wow, amazing went the first words out of his mouth about the actual game where we have a lot to work on, and, and that's fair. Um, but they punted once, right? They punted one time in the game. Uh, first half, didn't score enough points. Everybody would have liked to be 35 nothing at halftime. Um, but they punted once. They scored touchdowns on other jobs. The only two they didn't score on the first half were interceptions. Xavier Leggett stumbled. The ball took a weird bounce off of his shoulder pad, slashed the ground. And then another one, he uh, he just dropped. They, they were on the 20-yard line of SC State. Ball comes off his hands and bounces up. And that that's kind of your story. Other than that, they, they moved the ball up and down the field. So I think there were some positives. You don't take away a lot of the positives because of the talent gap. Um, but the negatives, I think you, you don't go as extreme on those either, and that's kind of how I look at it. So when you look at this season, this team, this uh, this program, in its current construct, it's all about, to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's not about SC State and, um, and Georgia State. It's about Kentucky. It's about Tennessee. It's about Florida. It's about Missouri. Where are we? Are we ready to go to Lexington and give ourselves a chance to win, or, or is still still, as Beamer said, a lot of work to be done? Yeah, I mean, I, that is going to be a very interesting benchmark, right? Kentucky's a top-10 team. I, I don't know. I, and I've, I've been a huge proponent of what Mark Stoops has done there. I think that's a model to follow. He almost got fired, right? And now he has Kentucky basically as a perennial top 25, and they're in the top 10 right now. I'm not sure if they're a top-10 team, but they're going to be a very tough out for South Carolina, and this is going to be a measuring stick game for them. You know, had some of those over the past few years, and South Carolina has failed some of those tests, to be quite frank. So we're going to find out. I, I wish I knew the answer to that, but here, here's how I feel going in. I mean, right now, based on what we've seen in five games from South Carolina, could we pick South Carolina to win that game on the road? I think that'd be tough. Um, but I don't think it's a game they cannot win. They're going to have to play their best game of the year so far. They've lost to one elite team in Georgia. They've lost to one, in my opinion, very good team on the road in Arkansas, and they've beaten three teams who are not very good. So that kind of leaves you wondering. You know, this this is going to be an interesting test for them. I think offensively they've shown 
Now, it's against lesser competition overall, but they've shown some capabilities on offense where if they play a clean game, you know, they can do some things. Um, Defensively, have they cleaned up some things? It was hard to tell because they they played Charlotte and SC State the past couple weeks. So there's still a lot of mystery, you know, I think around this team, but it is going to be a measuring stick game. A lot to work through up until kickoff right now where I'm sitting. You know, you probably don't pick South Carolina, but – I do think it's a game they they can win. They're just going to have to play their best this season. Chris, when you scratch your head, when you wonder why this or why that, do you go to talent or do you go to um, a new coaching staff, a new philosophy, a new game plan, a new scheme, or is it a little bit of both? Yeah, I I think I irritate people sometimes because I say things like, you know, football is a complex game, so it's usually a complex answer. Now, at the end of the day, you know, the results of a football program are always, you know, if you're going to bottom line it, which it should be, given what these guys are paid, you know, it's the head coach and it's the offensive coordinator, it's the defensive coordinator, but that doesn't mean there can't be nuance, right? If, if you're looking at the game last night and you're looking at the 50 points or you're looking up and de- up, up the, the play-by-play on ESPN or the box score and you're yelling about it, you know, dive in a little bit. You know, what happened during the game? If you just looked at the box, Spencer Rattler threw two interceptions again. Well, no, he didn't. (laughs) I mean, he had two balls bounce off guys' hands, you know? And so that's just one example. But I I think, look, it is is very fair to say, is South Carolina in the same league talent-wise as a Georgia? Well, absolutely not. Are they in the same league as Kentucky and maybe like a Tennessee? I think they're much closer to those, right? So they they the production against those teams, we need to see better performances against those teams than we saw, say, last year. Do they still have some holes? Absolutely. So I think it's fair to look at the team and say, you know, that's what we talked about through several games this, this season early. Say, you know, should the offense be scoring 40 points a game against Georgia and Arkansas and Georgia State? Probably not, but should they be better than they are? Yes. So I think you can – you can look at those things and have some nuance to them and, and try to meet in the middle of, of what can they squeeze out of this program. And I think to go on the road in Lexington to, to kind of cover the next game, they're going to have to go. They're going to have, they're going to have to play a much cleaner brand than they did really any game this season. The offensive turnovers kind of been a, a disease. They found different ways to do that and they've got to clean that up for one on offense. Why does it seem to me they're trying to highlight Marshawn Lloyd. I mean, I'm not saying they're trying to find somebody to build an offense around, but it does seem to me as a fan, and I think you would agree I'm not the casual fan. I'm certainly not a uh, coaching caliber fan, but but it seems to me they're really trying to find some identity, and they've chosen to make Marshawn Lloyd the centerpiece of that offensive identity. Well, I think he's one of the best players on the team. I mean, this guy, you know, if we're talking about talent, this is a five-star running back who Georgia and Ohio State and a bunch of other programs wanted, right? He's a really talented kid, and everybody's been waiting on him to get loose. And, you know, when, when you're looking at, you know, who, whose hands do you want the ball in, he's probably one of the first guys that comes to your mind, certainly in the run game. So, you know, when people are clamoring for South Carolina, rightfully so, to be able to run the ball better, and they saw, I know, Charlotte's defense is horrendous. But to see Marshawn go off for, you know, 169 yards in that game and to see some of the things he's done in the past, in the screen game, 
in the sh- in the short passing game, what he can do in the open field. Um, I think he's just proven himself to be one of the more reliable, one of the more dangerous offensive weapons on the team. And so they have several guys, I think, on the team where you look and say, you know, why isn't Jaheim Bell more involved in the passing game or why isn't Juice Wells more involved? And I think one of it comes down to, like, even last night, they, they played 61 snaps, I think, offensively. You can't get every guy 20 touches. You, know, you can't get five guys 15, 20 touches when you're playing that many snaps. That's just how last night's game went. But Marshawn is a guy that I think you, you probably should highlight. you got to find a way to get the ball in his hands. We'll explain. Chris, thank you for your time, my man. We will touch base again next Friday and really specifically dedicate time to the Kentucky Wildcats. Thanks a lot, my friend. All right. Appreciate you guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Chris Clark of Gamecock Central. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. Rev has another follow-up announcement to the previous <laughs> announcement he made that's turned out to be not exactly true. <laughs> well, we're for, you know, playing things by ear. The situation is fluid, as you know. That he was about to bust a gut to tell you turned out to not be quite so accurate. Well, but continue, Roy. Yes, Rev. and point that out. Okay, yeah, continue. Uh, we're, we're in communication. Let's see if you can get it right this time, Rev. I'll try. We're uh, in communications with our media partner, WMBF, and uh, trying to figure out when they are going to go full wall-to-wall coverage. They're going to do an update at 10 o'clock in just a few minutes, which we will carry on Live 95 in the Florence and PD area. And then uh, I think they're they're planning some wall-to-wall coverage a little bit later, which will be there with them on the radio. So you can uh, stay on 95.3 in the PD for your storm updates today. Are you confused yet? Yeah, we had originally, the bottom line is we'd originally planned to do wall-to-wall coverage with WMBF starting at 10 a.m. Because they led us to believe that was their plan. That was their plan. Okay. Yeah. And so we had made that plan to go along with them. Then they said, hey, we're going to do just a 10 or 15 minute update at 10 o'clock and then play it by ear from there so they're they're you know figuring it out just like we are and we'll just do our best to give all the information we can as accurately and quickly as we can as we always do yeah the, the best we can it's always the best intent. we can that's always our intent hey we've not mentioned that the braves and mets start a important national league series especially the national league east is for the the divisional championship and um who gets a better draw in the um in the bid for a World Series berth, the Braves are at home for three games, weather permitting. I have no idea what this storm does and how it affects Atlanta. I don't think it does at all, but we shall see uh, by the end of the weekend. But scheduled to play tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday in a three-game series. The Braves are one game behind the Mets, but they're really two because unless they sweep the series, the Braves lose the tiebreaker to the New York Mets. So um, they really need I – mean, they've got to win two of three. Mm-hmm. They need to sweep, but they've got to win two or three. Leave um, leave Atlanta in a dead heat. Makes it exciting, though. And then you've got the Florida Marlins. Hey, our trivia, you ready? Pepsi of Florence sponsors this nonsensical trivia we have every Monday and Friday in the spirit of baseball. The New York Yankees have won 27 world championships. Who has won the second most World Series titles in all of Major League Baseball history? The Yankees have won 27 this team has won the second most. 843-661-0937. The correct caller, six-pack of Pepsi product, couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Do we have a call? Hi, you are on. You know the answer? I don't know the answer, but I'm a Dodgers fan. So I'm... Nope, not the Dodgers. 843-661-0937. Do we have an answer? Hi, you're on. You know the answer. The 
Dodgers. Nope, not the Dodgers. 843-661-0937. Hello, you're on. You know the answer? Uh, yeah, St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals have won 11 championships. The Red Sox have won nine. Who is this? Who you, where are you calling from? Orangeburg. This is Tim. Okay. Thank you for calling. Appreciate you listening. Hang on, and we'll get you to Freehold. He'll get all your information. Where are the Dodgers here? I want to find the Dodgers. Where are they? Uh, the Pirates have won five. The Dodgers are six. They've won seven world championships. The Reds have won five world championships. Uh, the Giants have won eight world championships. The Athletics have won nine. Uh, the Red Sox, nine. The Cardinals, 26, 31, 34, 42, 44, 46, 64, 67, 82, 2006, and 2011. They aren't close to the Yankees, but in terms of overall World Series titles, they're the class of the rest of Major League Baseball. Quite the baseball town from what I've heard. Never been to St. Louis in my life, but I've heard it is very much a Cardinals town. I've been there. I've been in the arch. Well, I figured you had. Pretty you cool. also blew the last whatever it was you announced and then had to unannounce and, and reannounce. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're doing the best we can. You do the same. <laughs> and be we'll safe. talk Monday. Stay safe. Stay, um, stay out of harm's way.